Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com so hey everybody welcome to episode 295 of the more than just code podcast my name is tim and i'm in toronto ontario and i'm joined once again by jaime lopez jr in seattle washington how's it going and we have mark rubin on the line in san jose california all righty okay so yeah we'll just start off with some fact check jaime mentioned last week uh, the nhs or national health service as well i think you guessed that that's what it was but that was uh, in fact what it is is the publicly funded healthcare system in the united kingdom and uh, further on we were discussing bluetooth and uh I had said nine meters and you had said 30 meters and turns out that we were both sort of right because there's a class one range that's 20 to 30 meters or 66 to 98 feet for those of you driving at home and uh, class two range is five to nine. So I was sort of thinking, I guess I was thinking about class two and you were thinking about class one, right? So yeah, 60, 16 to 33 feet for uh, for the class nine. Because I mean, I kind of wonder like, you know, when I, when I separate myself from my phone, like uh, the watch and the phone, are they talking Bluetooth or are they talking wireless? Do you know? You guys know? That's a good question because if you're on the same Wi-Fi network, I think the watch can yeah. still do things, but I don't know if everything is routed through there. Yeah, because you know how like, if I leave my phone here on the first floor and I go upstairs to the second floor or third floor... Um, my phone, my watch doesn't know where my phone is, you know, sort of thing. And yet my house um, door lock can work from here, which is like, you know, 30 or 40 feet away from where I am currently. So who knows? Yeah, I think the devices but, have gotten pretty good at, at kind of going back and forth between the two right, in a lot right, of cases. Right. And we were discussing uh, Denise Crosby, uh, whose father is, she's named after her father, Dennis, who was Ben Crosby's son. So yeah, technically she is, or she is, um, not technically, she is <laughs> Bing Crosby's granddaughter. Um, but she, because she was with, she lived with her mother who was estranged from her father and all kinds of lawsuits and stuff ensued. She never actually met her grandfather when he died at her, when she was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So even though she was related to Bing Crosby, she never actually met him in person. And I'll let you take the, the Whitaker, Whitaker uh, one, Jaime. Yeah, this one came up because very similar to the unanswered question here about Sidney Crosby, the NHL great, and his relationship yes. or not with the uh, Denise Crosby and Bing Crosby 
Cosby family. Uh, we had posited humorously. I don't think this, anybody took this seriously, but you know, we, we have, we have facts and details for this reason. So, uh, Rob Whitaker, friend of the show, and we talked about his book, the developing inclusive mobile apps, uh, last time or the time before, uh, we'd say, Oh, I wonder, I think you might've been you team. You might've said, wonder if he's related. And he has given us the real details and says, uh, unfortunately not related to Jody Whitaker. She spells her name wrong with a, with a double T that I had not realized. Right, Thanks for right. the shout out. So it's funny because a, a friend of mine from, um, from Britain says, you know, when I, when I question about driving on the, which side of the road they drive on, he says they drive on the correct side of the road. And as long as we're doing facts, so they <laughs> have to look up, you know, how does Jody Whitaker actually spell a name? Like, you know, just fact checking the fact check. And I said, yeah. oh, I am about a year older than Jody Whitaker. So I am older really? than the doctor. Yeah. Wow. What do you know? So speaking of, since you mentioned Sidney Crosby, I think we have to, I don't know if you guys have heard, but uh, we have to say that our thoughts go out to the folks in Nova Scotia, which is where Sidney oh, Crosby is yeah, yeah, from. Yeah. We just had our largest, the largest uh, mass killing in uh, Canadian history happened this weekend. And so, you know, we um, we're thinking of you guys out there mm-hmm. struggling with that thought anyway okay so do you have any uh, ask mtjc Hemi? i didn't see any and i was going to put that link in there until i saw that you'd put yeah, it in the fact check i stole it it, it yes. arguably belongs in so that's good yeah well he didn't technically give us the uh, ask mtjc hashtag so not officially an ask mtjc at that point Alrighty, righty uh, Hemi, to start off with the follow-up yeah, I'm kind of been thinking more about the the hype cycles thing that we were talking about in relation to sort of the origins of the show and the sort of web hype cycle and how that sort of 10-year life cycle seemed to sort of work, not from a um, utility standpoint. And, and somebody pointed out, hey, like, what about Objective-C? It's been around for decades. And that's true, right? And it, it had its own cycle. Um, I think that um, there was definitely, you know, one pretty that worked out pretty well for mobile, right? You know, iOS development in particular, where it was like, you know, indie developers, super hot. If you had an idea, people were throwing millions of dollars at you. And then it became um, more and more saturated over time with the number of people who were involved. It started getting to a more sort of professional level where the the big companies were starting to play. And that was roughly around the five-year standpoint, at which point it just gets more and more difficult, right? And we certainly talked about it at the, the very early stages of this very, uh, very podcast um, on sort of the difficulties there and how things had changed. And it was sort of more like, yeah, everybody assumes that you're going to have a mobile app. It's not, you know, like a unique thing, right? There's no more like, there's an app for that. I was like, well, yeah, obviously there is, right? Of course. So this isn't something that needs to be advertised. It's it's just truth. Or like, and, why isn't there an app for that if there isn't one, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, <laughs> quite, the, quite the opposite now. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, something I've been wondering about is, are we seeing something kind of similar with uh, Swift? So Swift started uh, as far as we were publicly available in June of 2014, when we got a chance to see it. And here we are, you know, almost, it's April now, but you know, we're, we're pretty close to June. So we're almost six years in. And how would I analyze what was happening just prior to Swift UI being, and, and combined being announced? I would say, yeah, you know, Swift was sort of hitting the, you know, it was super hyped. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, let's check this out. Uh, conferences were starting to be created specifically around Swift and not necessarily around uh, iOS or um, Mac development, right? Swift on the server, you know, Swift on other platforms sort of thing. Um, and then that sort of seemed to slow down as each year went by, right? And you get into that that sort of midpoint of my hypothetical 10-year cycle of like, yeah, you sort of crest at the five-year point. But I think you can end up with sort of secondary bump 
apps that sort of extend this out. So I think very similar to the way that uh, the the iOS cycle, you know, pick a pick a year whether you started in 2007 or 2008. I mean, clearly you would have hit the 10 year mark by 2018, which means that midpoint is somewhere around 2012 to 2013. But you see another sort of secondary bump happen, sort of extending the cycle with Swift. And think even as Swift started to become more mature and people are just like, yeah, you know, Swift is just another tool that we love and enjoy, but we're not necessarily fanatical about it. I, I, I sort of wonder if Swift UI and Combine help renew the life for Swift, right? So we end up with like another maybe five-year sort of shift to that cycle where now you are starting to see, uh, granted, we're in the middle of a pandemic as this episode is being recorded for, for historians when they come back and listen to this. Um, you know, inability to, to meet and greet other human beings notwithstanding, I do think that the sort of content you would see in excitement around this technology um, benefits from having something new to work with in the form of Swift UI and combined where Swift mm-hmm. will get another like little bit of secondary, you know, a little bit of more lipstick and, and, uh, and hairspray sort of thing, making it more, um, you know, palatable for making conferences around this sort of thing, having people be excited and not just be like, Oh yeah, yeah, whatever. Well, we'll check that out later. Be like, no, no, I actually have to consume this content soon. So we'll see. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, like, so, so this weekend I was working in, in my old, you know, legacy app, which is um, written in Objective-C, but, you know, I was adding some new new features to the to the app. And so, of course, I'm writing the new stuff in Swift. And I'm just sitting here thinking as you're saying that, like, I wonder, can we call Objective-C from Swift UI? I wonder if we, I guess we can, if we use that at Objective-C thing, right? Um, or is that vice versa? That's vice versa, right? Um, well, you'd have to make sure it's interop, you, whatever yeah. you're doing is interop. Yeah. Operable with Objective C from Swift, and then yeah, if like you're doing types and stuff like that, yeah, yeah, and then if you're doing anything related to non-Swift UI framework like UIKit, you'd have to do the wrapping to get that into the uh, UI presentable or whatever it's called, right? Yeah, because in a lot of early things that I've seen in in Swift UI, people are still writing native Swift, right? Like if you're writing a, a you know a structure or whatever to be used, or if you're making a model, you don't necessarily have to write the model in Swift UI. You can write it in Swift and and just use it in Swift UI, right? So there's a bit of like like you said, there's a bit of well, I mean, Swift, like Swift not, UI still is Swift, right? The, lang- yeah, the language yeah. is still Swift. Yeah. So course, all yes. of the you know the, the structs and, and class constructs are, are still there. It just has some yeah. some special syntax for setting up the uh setting the up UI, your views. Yeah. 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 Oh, hmm. Interesting. But I do think you know, going forward, if there was anything added to Swift UI that was uh valid Swift but not valid Objective C, right, you know, yeah. like it wouldn't cross over the the interrupt. Well, like thing. like a I function builder, for example. Yeah, you couldn't do your top level Swift UI. Uh, the the you know the the define a Swift view and then a Swift UI view and then have your your body method where you can just list your components. You couldn't do that level in, in Objective C because that just doesn't exist. That that's yeah, a yeah. just doesn't exist. But in theory, uh, you could uh, have everything inside that in you know inside that point to objects that had Objective-C inside them. I mean, there's no fundamental reason why you couldn't. It's just that that one syntax layer just doesn't exist in Objective-C. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're saying that you could you could have, say, like, a, you could put, like, a Swift UI interface on top of an Objective-C code base, you think? Oh, sure. 
Absolutely, you could. Yeah. Mm, In fact, you could have you could have all of your Swift UI Swift UI views if you wanted to. I, I wouldn't recommend this, <laughs> but you could have all of your Swift UI views be UI Kit views wrapped in UI View representable and have those mm-hmm. UI Kit views all written in Objective C and then just wrap them in UI View oh, representable. Okay. Sure. Why not? Mm. I, like I said, I wouldn't recommend that, but you could. Seems like you yeah, could. Yeah. Yeah. So where does that put us with the definition of hype cycles in Swift? I mean, what's the, what's the TLDR? It, it gets complicated uh, from the way long ago sort of observation I had of like what ended up happening to the web as a technology. And even though we don't really have uh, great terms for this, if we use the web 1.0 and web 2.0 to sort of delineate the shifts there, you had that first really big, like, wow, anything that can be on the web, um, you know, will be on the web. And even if it's not that great of an experience and we're talking and, um, you know, pre, pre-Ajax type stuff, um, you would see it on there. And then it, it's a little complicated history-wise because you ended up having the uh, dot-com crash change a lot of, you know, what people were doing around that. But there were still people doing stuff with the technology and it, it sort of had its uh, time in the sun, right? You can very arbitrarily say around the 93 to 95 starting point to the around 2003 to 2005 ending point for that. And around, you know, right off the the tail end of that you have the web 2.0 in 2006-ish sort of time frame and that added sort of a whole new life to web technologies which actually continues even to this day right you had things sort of make their way through there with regard to uh the the old web 2.0 technologies you could draw the line around 2015-2016 when that became less interesting than what i don't know what to call it because there already was a terminology for web 3.0 so let's just go with reactive technologies like React, like Vue.js, like a whole bunch of other things where they started up around that 2015-ish, 2016-ish time. And we're, um, I guess we're about halfway through that. So we'll, we'll see what ends up happening with regard to what is the next bigger thing. So these, these aren't necessarily going to be progressive. They're not necessarily going to be completely um, whatever the opposite is of non-overlapping um, or overlapping. Right, they're not going to be discreet per se. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's fuzzy, and ten years is a really really arbitrary line, right? It could be seven and a half years, it could be eleven point two years. Sort of the the drawing lines to sort of see phases, almost like generations, if you will, is how I like to look at it from when I'm looking at the hype cycle and and, and what's going on. And so it's very non scientific. It's not meant to be any sort of um, uh, rule of law or or rule of nature sort of thing. So it's just fun to, to analyze it and see, you know, what has happened and try to predict, you know, what is going to happen next. Mm. All right, cool. Well, should we move on to our next story? Yeah. Take, I mean, it's yours, sounds... so <laughs> yeah, you no, just... yourself. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, the, the first story I have posted here is uh, um, a leaked iPhone 12 Pro schematic. Um, and this is a video on the Mac Rumors site. Um, but, uh, and you can see if you scroll down, uh, there's a, um, like a 3D render or 3D uh, drawing of um, of what is supposed to be the next phone. And it looks very similar to an iPhone 5 in terms of uh, the style. It's got the aluminum uh, band around or metal band of some type around. And you can see the brakes and the metal, metal for 
the um, iPhone 4 style antennas and uh, you know some sort of connection at the bottom and this has been this wasn't covered as a 3d uh, printable uh, model uh, for I guess for the manufacturing of cases and things like that right um, and so some of these guys in the videos have taken this this uh, piece and, and run madly through the you know through a tech video here on what they're thinking in the iPhone 12 is going to be a 6.7 inch OLED screen uh, and they've printed it out and talked about how slick it is and just a bit comical from my perspective as somebody who owns a 3d printer um, must be an amazing printer they've got if they if they, they can really sort of get the sense of how the new phone is going to feel but yeah it's it's interesting that that uh, they they're basically taking this apart and you know they're they're um, Surmising that there's going to be a lidar camera on the back, because the the camera section is sort of that squared off um, style that we have on the iPad, the current iPad uh, Pro that just came out. The antenna brakes are thicker, so they're thinking that it might it might include some five G handset hardware. Um, and uh, are there any guidelines know, on how it's supposed to be held? <laughs> That's right. Why, why brought the iPhone four? Right, <laughs> you got to make sure you get the mash the the meat of your thumb doesn't cover the right. antenna hole. Yeah, uh, it looks interesting that. That to me, it looks like there's yeah. It looks like the 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 um, lightning connector on the bottom is offset a bit too uh, in this this uh, drawing that that uh, they've posted here. So and they're also talking about the, you know the glass back for for um, again I'm not sure how they're getting that sort of um, from I guess from this this uh, 3D thing and and in the in the model that they printed the notch area comes out a little a little narrower than the current uh, iPhone 10 10 uh, R um, 10s um, scale. It's a little, little less, not as wide, so that's kind of an interesting thing. But um, yeah, so it's just uh, interesting that they've taken this apart. I don't know if you guys watched the video at all, but um, just sort of thinking this is where the iPhone uh, iPhone uh, 12 Pro is going to go. A little thinner than the the current uh, iPhone 11 Pro, um, so that's a, a, I guess another good thing. Um, they're also guessing that the uh, and, and this is I'm not sure where they get this leak from that the the logic board is going to be smaller and the battery is going to be more or less square within you know the lower part of the the body so that uh you know currently the the, uh, the battery kind of occupies occupies space with you know some of the um what do you call them the, the those engine things that uh, vibrate haptic and- engine Taptic engine, yeah. yeah, taptic engine they call it, I think, right, Apple? Yep. Um, interesting theories. Uh, again, uh, I, I guess in this era, we're kind of getting leaks all, all the time. So, you know, a lot of this stuff turns out to be true, right? Yeah. Or close to true. But uh, one thing that's kind of interesting, actually quite interesting, is that it's still a lightning connector. It's not a USB-C yeah. connector, yeah. yeah, if we can believe that. Well, I mean, the iPhone SE just came out with a lightning connector too, right? Yeah, but that's so, the low-end one, you know, so. Tr- oh, um, yeah, but, I guess You so. know, the high-end one, you might, you might think that it would have a USB-C. Mm, I don't know. Does the iPad Pro have a USB-C? The iPad Pro does. Yep. Yes. It does. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does. Oh, all bets are off until Apple ships something, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm kind of, first take is there, you know, if, if you didn't get the trypophobia response, the, that is the fear of holes from sort of the, the three circles that they had before, the, the fourth one seems like it's just leaning right into, into that. So <laughs> that's something to consider. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting in a in a why is this is the one fewer speaker holes on one side of the speaker. Grid. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't fully get that. It's sort of a weird thing for them to do to have uh, asymmetry. But the I'm a little surprised that they would go this route in this edition is the new colors including light blue, violet, and light orange, which mm-hmm. strike mm-hmm. me as more of an S year change to make. Mm-hmm. Right, so people know right, you have right. the new device, but you know it looks physically the same. But I'm not going to turn it on. 
I don't know if the violet's going to look quite like what they show here. I don't know if that's a coincidence. I'm hoping it's more of a deep purple rain kind of thing that I've been championing as an idea for a very long time on this very show. Um, I'm deep purple generally rain. Been, is that, is deep, that uh, deep, deep purple 80s rain. pop music or 70s prog rock, heavy metal prog rock? Kind of a combination <laughs> of the two. The, the, the poor man's of... Uh, of those two things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've generally been a, uh, I've been buying the, the, I think they call it silver. It's, it's, it's basically the white iPhone. I've been buying that for like a very long time, ever since the iPhone five, but I might be convinced if it's a decent color of purple, like a Prince color of purple. If folks were getting that before. Yeah. They were saying too, there's going to be sort of a blue color going away from the midnight green that they came out with for the last uh, iPhone 11. So I'm, I'm not sure where they get these color theories from. Right. But, uh, they seem to be pretty confident about it in the, in the presentation of this video, right? No, I'm due for an upgrade why. so they could have a lump of coal I'm probably going to end up buying it so and get my pennies ready. There was an interesting thing they talk about this this uh, um, slot on the back. I think I call it a smart connector that's on the on the side of the iPad iPad Pros that help it connect to the smart keyboards and stuff so I'm not sure why that, that uh, is there but uh, that I mean makes me think that perhaps they're going to go to having some other you know maybe a, a, a keyboard or something that could be used with these, these phones although why they're kind of small hard to say you know well the other big rumor this week of course this is a you know huge rumor and it kind of like lit up for this came out yesterday i think or two days ago um that um according to leaker john prozer uh, according to this this uh, his tweet um he says he's sort of pulled apart the ipad os 14 i guess is in beta currently um is it in beta i'm not sure but apparently it has references to an xcode so he's thinking that um he's pretty confident that uh, Xcode is going to come to the iPad in, uh, I guess, in June when iPad OS 14, 14 ships. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, curious too. I was thinking about that today when I was looking at this because obviously people are sort of saying, "Well, it'll, it'll, you know, guess their their best guesses as to what it'll be like. Is it going to be like a sort of souped-up Swift Playgrounds? Um, will it only uh, allow you to develop for iOS? Um, because I mean, how could you develop for a Mac on this? Um, I guess is the question. And then uh, which maybe think again about our, our friend over there called Objective-C. Will, will you be able to use Objective-C natively in this in this in Xcode? What do you guys think of uh, Xcode on the iPad? I think it's something we've been talking about for a long time and it would be great if it actually happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think to temper enthusiasm a little bit because I what I fear is I don't want to see what people sort of projected and expected when uh, Adobe brought Photoshop to the iPad to end up happening to Xcode, mm-hmm. right? So to, just to do my part to say, all right, if this does end up being true, it is definitely not going to be a one-to-one mapping with whatever you're using on your MacBook right now, right? Let's just say that it, it can't possibly handle every... Po- I mean, Tim, you talked about Mac, but like, you know, what about tvOS, right? Like, how are you going to have like a 5K monitor <laughs> representation and make that work reasonably well um, on an iPad? I don't know. And, and maybe the answer is for some of these that it won't have, you know, certainly at day one, but maybe not ever a one-to-one mapping. Um, I do think it is possible for it to be fairly um, fairly useful for certain cases, like I would expect it to support Swift, and in particular Swift UI, pretty well, right? Because you're, you're, you're basically writing code, you know, text for the most part, and they've got their new keyboard attachment that works pretty well. And uh, what limited manipulation you would want to do with um, something a little bit more fine-grained than uh, touch targets, well, it kind of makes 
makes sense that they have brought out in a in a point release a, a rather substantial upgrade to the pointer mechanisms, right? And being able to handle the the mouse so much more effectively. So that sort of feels like oh, that was heading the stage for iOS 14 and Xcode. So that that sort of jives with the idea there. But I don't think that means that you will um, necessarily be fiddling around with zibs and outlets and other things, right? Unless there's a lot of help to go with there. Um, so I feel like it still needs to be similar to Swift Playgrounds, where it still needs to be reasonably usable, even if slightly clunky, with touch targets, uh, even if you do have the much superior uh, mouse-based interface for like when you really want to get into nitty-gritty details. So that's like a real hand-wavy way of saying, like, I, I, I don't know if it will support um, things like uh, Objective-C. I don't know if it will support like Cocoa Pods and Carthage. I would guess it would support Swift Package Manager because, of course, why not, right? Like that's that's the newer hotness and that works better. So I would look at it as a uh, maybe uh, not bringing along a lot of the sort of legacy things that Objective-C, sorry, that uh, Xcode has brought on over the years on the Mac because it's a very different sort of use case. It, it might add on those things in the future in some nifty way, but I, I would expect it to be uh, not quite a beefed up Swift Playgrounds, but a more uh, toned down Xcode, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, the, the, the analogy to Photoshop is interesting too. I just opened my Photoshop on my iPad here and noticed that they still don't have Bezier tools, which is an example of, of a shortcoming in, in the Photoshop product. Um, they're, they're also talking, I was just looking at the what's new coming up, and they're also coming in, bringing in smart objects, which is another sort of convenience in in uh, Photoshop that makes you know kind of uh, fun to work with and, and convenient. Like you can have references to things and you can you don't have to have them edited directly in the, in the current document you're working in. And so that taking that analogy, like you said, into into where we're going to be with Xcode. I mean, Xcode is the utility knife of a lot of development. You can write, you know, I mean, most of us, for the most part, write Mac or, or iOS apps within the within the with the tools that they give us. But you can also use Xcode for a number of things. The other thing that that Xcode brings, um, and it gets better every year, is their integration with GitHub and and Bitbucket and things like that. Right for for source control. How is that going to work on an iPad? Right. Um, mind you, that's just you know you're just you're just pushing and pulling you know small files um but um you know how, how what about things like cocoa pods and what about you know uh other things that you know uh car what's that carthage is that other yeah other, carthage um, is the other one that, that i yeah so i mean those kind of things like how are they going to work within within an ipad um you know i've done i've edited an episode of of uh, spotcast on my ipad using the ferrite app and and it was you know it was okay uh, the sound quality didn't come out anywhere near um as good as as i did in I would get in logic, but um, uh, in some ways it was a lot faster to to edit within the, using the, the pen and and you know all the sort of touch conveniences of, of an iPad. Again, that's another point too. Is like I'm since I've been working from home for the last four weeks or five weeks, I have got my Logitech keyboard out here and I am using my iPad with keyboard commands and it's very Mac like in a lot of ways. I can do you know do app, quick app switching. I can do a Sherlock type searching. Um, that kind of stuff, all kinds of things that I you know, I copy and paste and things like that. That you know, escape key and all that nonsense that I have on my on my iPad or ability to use, right? But you know, the, but they'd have to make uh, an Xcode for iPad work in just tablet mode. Like, how do you how do you work with that when you're just using the virtual keyboard, right? Um, you're not you don't have a physical keyboard like I have now. So there's going to have to be some give and take if the, if Xcode does come to to the iPad, right? You're not going to be able to do everything that you could do on 
a Mac uh, with Xcode at, on, on in the iPad OS, right? It's just there's, it's going to be like a, a watered down version, right? I'm wondering about some just more fundamental things, like how does the how's a simulator going to work? Are they right, going to have yeah. a simulator running on the iPad? I mean, I guess they could use the the new split screen feature mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to do that. I, I guess, uh, but will you be able to deploy to an actual device? Will, can you will you be able to plug mm-hmm. a? I mean, I suppose you know from a with a USB-C to Lightning uh, cable, it's physically possible now, uh, whereas Lightning to Lightning just didn't exist at, you know, ever. Uh, right. So, But you have wireless, don't forget. You, you do have, have wireless, wireless debugging. Yeah, yeah that's right. true. You do have wireless debugging. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got a Lightning to USB connector that I can I use on my, on my current iPad, right? Because I have the 2015 iPad Pro, right? Mm-hmm. First gen. And and with the Lightning connector, I can connect to USB. So te- so it is theoretically possible to for me to, pl- to tether my phone off of my iPad and, and build to it. Right. You know? from a, yeah, from a physical connection point of view. Yeah. 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 But it's something that's never been done well by us before, at least by developers before, to be able the the ability to connect two iOS devices directly together through a wire. Right. You've never done that before. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah, other than the USB thing that I've got in my hand, right? So, because uh, the iPad OS does support USB, right? Like that's, I guess it's a mass storage, con- you know, connection, right? From that point of view. Oh, I see. You are actually, you're using it just, you're, so you are actually plugging your iPhone into your iPad and I using could. it for I, I curr- currently yeah currently I use I use it I use this USB to for MIDI out mm-hmm. uh, off my iPad into into my Mac for instance right but but it's conceivable since like I you can plug in in the, the new um, iPad Pros in this one you can plug a thumb drive in right like I could I could put a thumb drive on this USB plug it into my into my Mac and, and access it I'm, I'm theorizing but I know that I know that they can do that on the um, the USB C thumb drive on the on the new iPad Pros right so it's conceivable that they've got the sort of mechanism to do, you know, communication with mass storage devices, which technically an iPhone is, you know, because you're, you're, you're dumping code down to it, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's possible to do that. And also the, the, the couple of guesses here in this article about whether, you know, you're going to be talking to a Mac to do, like we were talking about like a couple weeks ago, that the Mac would actually be the, the, um, would handle the, the heavy lifting, right? So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if, the, if, if something does come to pass. It's like, as Jaime sort of said at the beginning of this section here, you know, the, the proviso is don't expect it to be a, a full-blown Xcode, right? Yeah, well, I think you'll be setting yourself up for disappointment if you think it's one-to-one. Mm-hmm. And I think it's better to look at it as additive, as in, what did you have before? Nothing. Yeah, and now you have yeah. a whole lot of something, even if it's not everything yeah. you would want. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the story, like, when I was walking down the sidewalk with my wife about, I guess, about five or six years ago, or even more. No, it must have been uh, 12 years ago. I had a BlackBerry in my hand, and I was complaining about how bad the browser was on the BlackBerry. And she says, look, you're walking down the street, and you're on the internet. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do think uh, builds would be kind of painfully slow on the iPad for anything, yeah. you know, any kind of reasonably sized project. Yeah. I, I wonder if they'll have been working on some sort of uh, enhanced incremental build, mm-hmm. which they'll be like, oh, you know, they'll, they'll talk about an iPad and be like, and of course it's even faster on Mac OS because we can take these same, like I can already see Craig Federighi saying that, right? Like, of course mm-hmm. we made these same improvements for Mac OS. So it works on traditional Xcode as well. Mm-hmm. And we've added a delete derived data right to your touch bar because why yeah. not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great point. Like, how yeah. do you go in and how do you go in and do that? And how do you install simulators? And yeah, yep. well, mind you, mind you, the, 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 remember the, the the talk on 
tax code a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, where where they were they were doing a debugging talk, and so they debugged Xcode debugging Xcode. Did you remember that talk? So yeah, I remember you know, that talk. No. Yeah, yeah. It's very meta, it's kind of meta to be you know debugging Xcode in Xcode, but yeah, yeah. I guess the one thing you would not be able to do, I guess, without jailbreaking, is the the um, <laughs> the fecal transplant thing that we talked yeah. about for getting simulators yeah. to older versions of Xcode. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be uh, using it to support your old legacy code because you'd have to be using the latest version of. And, you, and yeah, you, you're right. You you pretty much have one. Like on the Mac, you can have multiple versions of Xcode. You know, um, this is going to be a version of Xcode. Right? It's going to be whatever version you've last updated to, right? So you're not going to be able to poke around in the file system the way you can on macOS, or have or have two two copies of Xcode. You know, because you know currently because it's a Mac, we can kind of take it apart with our, our you know admin access, whereas you're not going to have that kind of access on, on an iPad, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Good point. You're not going to be, you're not going to be dropping down to the command line to do stuff, right? Or maybe you will. I don't know. Who knows? I would assume that the files that you're going to work on are going to be stored within the files folder, and then you should be able to, from there, get them onto your Mac and bring them into the real Xcode, you know, um, kind of thing. I think I think it's it's Xcode for the nomad, the guy who wants to, you know, go to the coffee shop and uh, over lunch and, you know, build the UI. <laughs> maybe you can, maybe it's for building watch apps. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it'll be exciting to see if it, if it happens. So, I mean, you know, like I said, we've all been chomping at the bit for this this uh, particular piece to come. I mean, I, I'm able to do a lot more these days on my, my iPad than I hadn't been able to. So in the past, it, every year it gets a little bit, or every month it gets a little bit uh, cooler to use an iPad, which yeah, is cool. It, it, it could definitely just be a sort of a, a super playground mm-hmm. um, with some more more features, more Xcode-ish features, and it would be called Xcode on the iPad, but, but it would definitely be a much reduced experience from what we're used to. I could see that for the first pass, first version. Well, I did like using Photoshop as the analogy, and I did actually when I first got it, I did pull some files that are some some Photoshop files, layered documents that I had created on my Mac. I put them on the iPad and I opened them up and just to see if, in fact, you know, the majority of the interface was still there, and you know, layers worked the way layers work, and channels worked the way channels worked, and and pretty much it was yeah, pretty one to one. I mean, I could work on the file, I could make changes on the iPad, and then I could send it back over to the Mac and and finish up. So. Um, like I said, it could be like if you're going camping for the weekend, you could go take your iPad with you and, and do a little bit of Xcode while you're sitting around the campfire. And then when you get back to the office or your home office on, on the, after the weekend's over, you could shove it onto the, the real Xcode and, and finish it off and whatever, right? So it'd be interesting to, well, I mean, are we going to be able to ship apps from the iPad, right? That's another interesting one too. Like the iPad is more, it's it's a bit frustrating sometimes, but every time I go into the browser on the iPad, I'm now able to do things that I on the iPad OS that I was not able to do like a year or two ago because it would it would recognize it as a mobile mobile browser. Now they've got Safari set up so that you can actually Safari on the iPad can fool uh, a website into into the fact that it's a desktop desktop app, right? So a lot of times I'll get a desktop experience on my my browsers when I, in fact I want the mobile experience, right? So I can log into sites that I would not been would not have been able to log into on a mobile device in the past, right? It's kind of it's kind of they're blurring the lines if it were as it were. Anyway, so last week I was talking about what I refer to as road apples, which are the the products that Apple's made over time that um, sounded really kind of cool. You know, a hand, the early adopters ran out and bought them. I own a couple of them. 
um, and uh, and they've they've turned out to be uh, less than favorable over time. Um, people look look down upon them now. Um, so and and I did manage to find several sites that listed you know this this category of flops that Apple has come up with. This one I've got linked to here in the show notes is uh, the twelve biggest flops of all time, which is arguable. There's a majority of like I'd say around eight of these uh, is on just about every list. So we can just go through them really quickly. But uh, so right off the top, 20th anniversary Mac, which was introduced at uh, the 20th anniversary of, of it was sort of a fancy uh, div- uh, system. It came with a Harman Kardon uh, subwoofer and a black keyboard, but it had a trackpad on the keyboard. Um, and it was, you know, would be hand delivered to you. I, I want to think the price was around 10 grand. It was like a lot. It was, oh yeah, it says 70, 7,500 here. It, was, it wasn't a cheap system, um, but as far as Macs go, it was underwhelming at the time um, compared to the other Macs, like the portable Macs and things that you could have around the same time. So it was it was a, a novelty, but I don't think it ever really had a day. Another one that's listed here is the Macintosh TV. I don't know if you guys remember this. It had a TV tuner built into it. It was based on the LC model where the you've got the, ta- the uh, Trinitron screen uh, built into, um, you know, cathode ray tube built into uh, an LC type computer. Uh, black mouse, black keyboard. From that point, from a collector point of view, that was kind of a cool, it was the first black Mac that uh, that you could get. Um, but yeah, it didn't it didn't last very long. And it was based on the LC520, it says here. But yeah, it was kind of boring, you know, like, uh, no, it didn't really sell very well. I don't know if you guys remember Pippin. Do you remember Pippin? Yeah, sure. The Pippin was Apple's entry into the into gaming. I think around the time, uh, I think PlayStation had been maybe in its first generation, you know, you had Sega's, you had, uh, you know, Genesis, and you had, um, I don't know, if, well, I can't remember if Microsoft had a system at that point in time, but this is Apple's. They joined up with somebody else to come up with this thing. Uh, I don't know if, any, if it ever even made it out of, I think it was in Japan, right? It says, yeah, Japan, Japan's Bandai uh, partnered with Apple to build this thing, but I don't know if it ever really, you know, it's 12,000 units were sold in the U.S., so interesting. Hmm, that kind of came and went. Uh, Mark mentioned last week, the, uh, the reason I put this particular list on, uh, I picked it out because this was one of the ones that listed Ping, which we talked about last uh, last week, and this was sort of built into iTunes, uh, and it was sort of trying to be, you know, your your musical Facebook. You could, um, uh, musicians could create uh, accounts in here, and you could join up, and you could follow them, and, you know, like, uh, that kind of stuff. I, I used it for a bit and forgot about it after about a week. Um, I think most people forgot about it after a week, too, right? Um, this is one I have trouble with, Newton. Like, they're saying the Newton. Newton always had a bad reputation because, um, you know, we're talking about a device that was, was made in, like, 93? Yeah, 93. So, back in the 90s, they had a handwriting recognition. It started the, it was one of the first devices to, to start the personal digital assistant uh, kind of thing. You had your contacts, you had to-do lists, you had, you know, some of them had modems. Um, you, it had a rudimentary email back then. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was just a cool device. Sorry, go ahead. It says here 50,000 units, though. From a product point of view, from a sales point of view, it was a failure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, and we also know that, that pro, uh, just Steve Jobs, when he came back to Apple, promptly killed it because it was part of the, I think it was part of the John Scully kind of era in terms of products, right? Uh, they had the Performa listed here. Performa was sort of a low-end um, consumer-level product. I, I don't know. It's sort of an. It was the the next step up from from the um, uh, LCs, so uh, low-cost Mac. So it was kind of a um, cheaper version of computer, which is fine. I mean, you weren't really doing heavy lifting with it. So this is the one I have trouble with. I own, I actually own a, Ma- a, a Power Mac G4 Cube. I think it just looks cool. Um, it was a G4 computer at the time when when the um, 
the you know the, the high-end desktops were all G4 processors. Um, it was made to be. Um, it has no fan, so it's it's quiet. Uh, it had an LCD monitor that came with it. There are two sizes, 15 and 17 inch. I think I have both of them in the garage. And um, yeah, it was just cool. The, the problem with it was it had an acrylic base, and there's a lot of cracking in the in the acrylic base. Um, and it was it had limited expandability. I think that was part of the reason why people um, considered it a flop, right? So well, and it was expensive. Yeah, for what you got. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was that the one? I, I do remember it having a cool look, but I also thought it was the one that was uh, plagued with overheating problems. Yeah. Well, it, I don't know about he- overheating, but it, ha- it had that convection thing. Like it basically, it stood up. It stood up on this. Um, I think the heating uh, helped with the cracking of the, the acrylic. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it sits up. It had a it had a proprietary connector to for the video, which was was problematic. Um, yeah, it was all right. I mean, it's 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 nice. Apple three. Now the Apple three was 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 doomed from the get-go because I think it was still... Apple was still um, uh, segmented. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, bifurcated. <laughs> they had uh, two sort of pursuits. Uh, the Apple II... Apple One and Apple II computer were, were sort of the mainstay throughout the uh, 70s and, and early 80s in terms of um, where computing was in general. Um, it was Apple was leading the market for a long time. Um, the Apple III was kind of... came out, I think, after the Macintosh, uh, well after the Lisa, and, and I don't know that it uh, was really oh it released in 1980 it says here so before the Mac um, yeah I don't think it really took off it was I don't I don't even know if, I've never even seen one in real life have you guys I've seen one yeah yep. the uh, perform- PowerBook 5300 um, I think it was called Jedi when it was being delivered um, yeah it got clips it was the last of the of the uh, um, G2 I guess we can call it uh, processors because the G3 laptops came out shortly thereafter um, it had some weird uh, weird things like the the memory memory was on its sort of strange kind of card and they were difficult to to upgrade and don't 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 know that they lasted very long the lisa of course um which eventually became the the um what do you call it mac xl at the end of the end, end of its life um it was meant to be an office computer it was sold for twenty five hundred dollars or something like that uh oh no i sold for ten thousand dollars but it was, it was just about twenty five thousand this today right so uh, lisa has its, its place in history it was one of the first um gui um computers outside of xerox right so you know anybody's got one of those, Mark? You Elisa? Know? Yeah. I don't know anyone who ever actually owned one, but I remember when they came mm-hmm. out very, very clearly and really, really wanted one. Did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 I think I think the the problem with Lisa, I think the, the software wasn't quite there. Um, it, it got it got replaced by the the Mac pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. When it came out. So. And then our our fr- our friend the HomePod is listed on this particular site here um, as twelve or thirteen. So um, does this deserve to be on the list? We talked about this last week, right? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, from a sales point of view, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird product. Mm-hmm. As we, yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about it last time. It's a weird product, and it's just kind of hanging out there. So yeah, know. yeah. I sort of felt the same way about the uh, the iPod when it first came out too. Like it was sort of an odd thing. And then Apple TV. We didn't talk about the first generation of Apple TV. That kind of sat out there on the shelf for a long, long time. Um, back in back when I was a reseller, you had to you had to sell uh, iPad iPods and Macs to be able to sell the Apple TV. And yet it didn't really go anywhere and it wasn't until Steve Jobs kind of came back around to it a few years later like three or four years later that it had a resurgence and and where it is today right um so it's like it's, I think we've talked about this the first kick at the cat um is 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 the world really ready for a, a I mean 
I guess it's competing with the Alexa and and uh, the Google Home, right? In terms of trying to find a place in the world. Yeah. Except that it's different. That's the thing. It's not yeah, the same thing, yeah. but it's yeah, it's been put into the same same space bucket. Yeah. 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 I mean, we use it. We use ours every day. I mean, Carol has one upstairs that she uses in her studio, and, and we have the one downstairs in the kitchen, and we both interact with it every day. So you know, and I, and I do find you know I've got Alexa and I've got Google Home um, or Echo, I should say, and, and Google Home, and I I just find the this better the only, the only difference is with amazon i can say hey what's the status of my deliveries you know <laughs> i mean I, I forget if we talked about this last time but just supporting spotify and stuff like that would would have gone a huge way to making it more popular does it yeah so i mean it, it, we use it we use itunes radio on it right which mm-hmm. we listen to the, the regular radio on it but um i'm surprised it doesn't have spotify to be honest yeah with it. it's just if an it app had, right if, if it had spotify and maybe even like sirius xm yeah uh you know, you could listen to Howard Stern on on Sirius. Uh, then it might have actually been something. Mm. Yeah. One thing I like to do though is transfer my audio from my phone to it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm listening yep. to a podcast yep. or a video or whatever, I'll just I'll just you know, just hold the phone over top of the HomePod and the audio just cha- cha- jumps over without even question, right? So, right. And then right. Of the last thing on this list is the iPod Hi-Fi, which was basically a boombox. You plugged your uh, your 32 pin connector. Uh, iPod with a click wheel on it yeah. um, to play your music, right? Made for iPod. <laughs> yeah, that was an odd, an odd one too. Which also started at three forty nine. <laughs> so <laughs> releasing stereo like items at three forty nine apparently is not the path to victory. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the uh, the road apples, as it were. There are a few others that, that I could talk about that are on here, like the uh, the Macintosh V VS or VC or something like that. Uh, that was a pretty VX was one. I think it was on the market for eight months before they they pulled it and replaced it with another one, which you know basically made people furious. Um, that was a big one. And the, some of the LC models were pretty were pretty bad. So yeah, there was a, after the LC five five twenty that we talked about just a little while ago, which became the the Macintosh DV. There was a uh, it was I think it was called Performa and also LC, and it was sort of an all-in-one built-in thing. And, and uh, we used to have one in our family, and it was just problematic. It didn't work at all. Was that a Power Mac, or was that a... You're talking about the Performa, right? Was that a Power Mac, or was that a 68,000? I think it was 68,000, yeah. yeah. Um, hard to say. Yeah, I, th- I think there were 68,000, because the, the 6100 was the first sort of low-end... Um, yeah, Power Mac. Power Mac. Yeah, right? I had the 7100, and it was kind of a... I hate to say it, but it was kind of a crappy machine. I like the 7100. We had a lot of... we. we, we used to use those in production and the 7100s were pretty rock solid because really? there was a quadra 650 which was the same body style as the 7100 mm. the quadras are, as i recall were good but they were 68,000, 68,040. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so and then and yeah. then with the um and that company newer came out with these uh right. g3 cards you could pop into them to give them more life the early power max right so i still have a 6100 here on on the shelf that's right the there was a time when you could you could swap out your processor yeah yeah and extend well, actually, the life of your computer a couple of years. Yeah. 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 And then it was, uh, I think it was around, was it around that time when the clones came along? Because we, there was a while the clones were kicking Apple's butt for a while. The clones were before that. The clones were actually, I believe, were before the Power Max, weren't they? Or maybe contemporary mm-hmm. with the Power Max. 
contemporary because I think we had that. Um, there's a couple of companies that made them. Day, Daystar made one. Um, Power Power Computing made one. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think Bob mm-hmm. Levitis was the spokesperson for that. And yeah, that that there was pretty. That was pretty dark times. That was the Gil Emilio days, right? Mm. Uh, and I think that's when when Jobs came back. It was uh, he killed that program right away because mm-hmm. he he felt that Apple should never have uh, farmed out their uh, hardware. Right? Yep. And it turns out he was right. So that's our story about the uh, road apples. So I don't know if you guys read this today, but there's an article here by Jim Del Rumpel on the Loop. Uh, he has got his hands on the Magic Keyboard for the new iPad, and uh, he doesn't not like it. Um, have you guys read this at all? Well, did you read further down, though? Oh, what does he say there? Further down. I, I gave up after, like, a, a bit. What does he say at the end? He he actually ends up loving it by the end. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> this is the... It's it's Gruber, right? It's not it's not Dalrymple. Oh, this is oh this is Gruber? The one that you have linked in there. Oh, name. yes. You're, yes, yeah. you're, yes yeah. right. John Gruber. Yeah, he okay, does start off by that. saying that his first impression was really bad. He didn't like it at first. And then he kind of got used to it and kind of figured out how it's actually... How it actually works. And right. and his main point is that it's it's so he was holding it wrong, right? Kinda, yeah. It doesn't have the same feel as say a MacBook Air, even though it kind of looks like it, because right. the iPad is way heavier than the display on a Mac Air. So so the hinge has to be stiffer and tighter, and and you just have to get used to that. It's a it's a different animal, but but once he did, he decided he loves it by the end. Really? Yep. Huh. Yep. Well, I guess I guess I I kind of got the uh, impression he hated it. Was... Yeah. Yeah. You got to read. Keep reading. <laughs> did you read it, Jaime? Yeah. It uh, it definitely does follow sort of the you know, but there's a twist midway through right where he yeah. starts yeah. going into more. Uh, I think when he's once he starts going into more details and how some of the things work like the hinges and stuff, it starts to make more sense. And the the thing I think he gets at is like yeah, it um, it shouldn't surprise you that certain things are the way they are. Like it is uh, the the base right of the the keyboard is kind of heavier because it it has to be right. Like where right, yeah. <laughs> where where else are you going to be able to have something that can be top heavy and yet disconnect really easily and not fall over like a piece of plastic. Um, yeah. So there's been people who are like, Oh my gosh, like when you have this thing with the, um, if you have the, the total weight of the iPad pro and the magic keyboard is like, Oh, it's heavier than a MacBook air. And what's the point at that point? It's like, well, because it's not really a MacBook Air, right? Like you're you're adding capability to the iPad, and yes, there is some compromise, um, but you end up with something that meets an altogether different sort of use case. And I think that's sort of where he starts out the article of like, oh, he expected it to be, you know, since it's physically similar to a MacBook Air, it'll be like a MacBook Air. And if you come into it with that sort of mindset, you're probably going to be disappointed until right. you sit with it and say, oh, wait, no, actually, it's a different style of usage. Um, I, I think very very similar to our discussion about Xcode and, and uh, Photoshop on the iPad versus the MacBook. Well, he buried the lead in this one because he basically ranted about it for the first, you know, three quarters of the oh, article. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was getting the impression that he was like saying that the magnets were so strong or hard to work with. I can tell you, like, I've got, I've got the, the keyboard, this um, Logitech keyboard combination with my, my um, laptop is very heavy, right? And it's very stiff. It, like, you can't adjust the screen at all, right? So um, every time I go to, you know, grab it and, and move the screen i'm reminded oh yeah it's it's an ipad it's like a triangle and it's a solid triangle i don't get to you know adjust it or whatever whereas i think this this um new magic keyboard style would or smart keyboard is that what we're we calling it smart keyboard magic keyboard um would be much much more flexible and in, in terms of being able to move it a little bit anyway but, but i got the impression he was he was i mean in terms of being able to disconnect as well i mean like my current ipad pro is locked into the logitech keyboard it's, it takes quite a bit of effort to separate them so even if 
if Apple had put strong magnets in, the fact that you could separate it with you know with a you know relatively ease uh, compared to what I you know it's a, it's a several hand job to try and get my iPad released from the Logitech currently, right? Yeah, I think it'd be if I had if I had the druthers to run out and buy a, buy one right now, I probably would. And at three fifty, right? It's only three hundred dollars or something like that. Only listen to only. me <laughs> at that magic three forty nine <laughs> price we just talked about the cursed the cursed price, right? Um, uh, you know, I, again, I think it really depends on on what you're looking to do. Um, it's not mm-hmm. for my use case, but from listening to other folks, um, you know, videos and podcasts and stuff, I'm like, yeah, I, I could be convinced that if you were a different kind of user than I am, absolutely. It seems like it 100% makes sense, especially because it should be a whole lot easier to manage than uh, even the relatively easy to manage MacBook, uh, MacBook right. Pros and stuff. And the, the thing that is kind of interesting is... Um, you know, because folks have pointed out like, oh, well, you know, Apple tends to have an advantage when it comes to peripherals like this because they, they know the new device. And I'm um, not the first one to point this out, but people say, wait a minute, but this is compatible with last year's iPad Pro. So what is the excuse for nobody else coming up with anything even vaguely like this? I mean, that's that's a testament to the kind of engineering that they put into it. Right. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so you can use it with the, with the last year's model. Yeah. I mean, it, it is generally true that Apple tends to have an advantage for peripherals um, of, of this sort because they, they know what's coming out and they can make the new device and the peripheral work together seamlessly. But in this case, right, right. you could take last year's iPad uh, iPad Pro and it would work. So people have clearly had some time to, to come up with it. And I think kudos to Apple for coming up with something that uh, even if there are some compromises over you know what you might imagine perfection to be, it's pretty darn good. Um, cool. If we weren't right. in a pandemic world, I would have run out to an Apple store to at least go try it, right? And see, yeah, that's see the, how the that's tactile the feel works. Yeah, that's the thing is the the fact that you know we can't run out and just I, I I'd probably be the same way I'd probably like walk in try it out and go yep yeah, okay I'll have one of these you know that happened when I when I I wasn't going to go in and buy a 12 inch iPad Pro but as soon as I saw one I fell in love with it right so I bought it on day one just by visiting the Apple store now if I had you know sat at home and hemmed and hawed about it I probably never would have bought one. Oh, that's cool. Uh, speaking of new stuff that just came out, so um, in case you're wondering, I, I, I'm assuming that nobody on this panel is going to buy an iPhone SE. Um, although, if you watch uh, Rene, uh, posted here uh, uh, today's video from Rene Ritchie, which he talks about the iPhone uh, SE 2, second generation, um, it's a deep dive, 20 minutes long. Um, he covers off a lot of uh, things about this particular phone and compares it to the current phones that are out there, um, including the Google phones. And uh, takes pictures and videos. Uh, looks at talks about the screens, uh, the fact the LCD versus OLEDs, um, and keeps coming back to the price. I mean, the fact of the matter is, this is a high performing phone. Um, you know, with the A13 chip, uh, competes with uh, with the current or the last year's models of, of iPhone 11 and 11 Pro, yeah. um, and it, and the tens. Um, it's quite a quite a significant thing. I mean, for uh, he even goes into some of the, the talks that we were. Just talking about um, MP3, which will probably be in the after show um, or music sampling, but uh, talks about some of the the trade offs in terms of um, image quality and that kind of stuff. But Apple's done quite a, quite a bit of um, you know the, the typical do their typical tuning with the uh, the LCDs and or LEDs LED or LCD, um, and uh, you know they 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 tweak the the hardware to make it you know um, more than acceptable. The average person who's looking for an ex- inexpensive phone is going to have a phone that's going to kick out for quite a long time right so if you're if you really want to take a look at what uh, what the, the differences are between this phone and the current crop of phones that you that we've been 
talking about for the last year or six months, I guess. Um, yeah, check out this video by Randy Ritchie. Yeah, I, I, I think to your point, I'm not going to buy this as a replacement for my iPhone 10, but I would say that it seems like a really good buy for test devices, right? If you're if you're looking to have uh, dedicated devices, if you're working at a place that's like, oh, we need devices to, to do stuff. So I was like, well, you know, we should test out this brand newer one that will be pretty screaming fast for at least a few years. So you're not stuck with a with a pokey old uh, hand me down iPhone at right. three ninety nine. I mean, it's uh, you know, it, it's not cheap in a you know compared to many other things in the world, but um, for the price, uh, you know, everything that you get out of it, it's still still pretty good. Like I don't think there's any shame in having this phone. I just for myself happen to be uh, you know I'm going to buy um, a higher end phone, and and people can shake their fists as to whether that's going to be worth it, and it's probably not from a you know cost benefit analysis. But I happen to be in a place where I'm uh, you know I'm happy paying an extra premium for whatever uh, whatever gadget and gimmick that the new iPhones will end up having in the fall. And I think the the average person really doesn't need all the bells and whistles that are in the high end phones these days. I mean, I, I I wouldn't even use most of the the you know the fancy camera features and all that if in, in the in a brand new phone. Uh, not that I'm going to buy the SE because I'm you know I'm going to have to buy the <laughs> the high end one, but but most people don't actually need it, including myself. Don't actually need it. So. So I think at that price point, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine them not selling a huge amount of these at that price point. All right. Um, so what's this next story about Jaime? I saw this tweet this tweeted about earlier, but it sounds like it's already sold out, as it were. Yeah, and I think you had to be invited to it. And, and what we're talking about is that uh, Apple has apparently invited select developers to attend an accessibility webinar. Ahead. Yeah, what's uh, a select developer, though? I want to know what that is. Nobody really knows. It's unclear if it was you know truly like you know whatever you might think of it. As the elites, or if it was, I don't know, we randomly selected 10,000 developers and said, here, go, you know, the first 500 of you, whoever wakes up and, and looks at their email and signs up, gets it. It's, it's really, really unclear. Um, but, you know, less, I should say, fewer than the entirety of all Apple developers were invited. So some sub subset. Uh, and apparently this, you know, as we are recording, it is the Wednesday prior to Thursday, the 23rd. So by the time this episode goes out, um, I mean, you weren't going to be able to get in anyways because it sounds like people signed up for it really fast, but it is an online event to learn how you can take advantage of the accessibility features that come in Apple devices. And uh, you'll be able to ask questions during and after the session and you can sign up for individual consultations. So people are kind of wondering, like, is this a trial run for whatever setup they're going to have, presumably for WWDC 2020, the online only event, WWDC? Well, which is interesting because, you know, even at WWDC, um, do we... Uh, have time for questions and answers? I can't remember. Depends on the session, right? Like usually you huddle think, around the presenter. I'm trying to think the last time I saw something like that, but it's it's a little different. I wonder if they're experimenting here with, um, you know, presenting content yet also having sort of like a lab, you know, like a group lab sort of thing where people ask questions. I, yeah, I, I think know, at some of, some of the events they have questions. Like I remember when Grover was on the stage, they put microphones out in the crowd for people to talk to Grover, right? Sesame Street's Grover. I don't think it was that that one. What was the, was that one of the lunchtime just, sessions? Just, just, just last, uh, it was the final keynote of um, WWC this year. The lunchtime session, yeah. Mm, okay, got it. I think it's some of those ones, like the like the lunchtime ones, they put the, the you know, the microphones out in the, in the aisles and people line up 
behind them, right? So at the regular WWDC sessions is what I'm saying. Like they'll they'll say at the end of it, you know, we're going to be down in the lab, so come down and see us. And that's kind of where you go down and ask your questions directly, right? Yeah. Be interesting to see. Of course, you know, we already support accessibility, so I'm not worried about that. Alrighty. So anyway, I have to go and let my dog out, so I'll be right back. Do you want to start talking about your main topic here, Jaime? Sure. We've got an, an article here on uh, view communication patterns in Swift UI. So this covers how many different patterns is it? It is five different patterns here that we'll we'll, we'll talk about and tease about because I'm actually kind of curious on the the panels idea of some of these because I think I got most of it um, with with limited sort of experience with Swift UI. Um, a lot of it I was able to map to other sort of patterns and techniques I've used, um, but one of them was sort of baffling to me. So I think maybe some discussion here. So the five different ways are going to be from you know getting data from a parent, you know, like a parent view to a direct child, getting from a parent view to a distant child or grandchildren, I suppose, uh, going the opposite direction from child to direct parent, from child to distant parent, and between children, right? So siblings, if you want to call it that. So the the first one, a parent to direct child, that seems fairly straightforward. I think this is one that folks are going to be pretty familiar with of like, uh, they have this example hierarchy of a content view with a to-do list view, um, sort of subordinate to it. So using the initial works out pretty good, right? You've got your individual to-do list items and you can pass those along from your content view to the to-do list view and then each one down to a to-do item view, a singular one. So that makes sense, right? Do you, Mark, you, do you agree? Yep. Makes sense totally so far? Makes sense. Okay. Yep. All right. And then they set up the, the scenario of uh, parent to distant child. So imagining like, uh, keep in mind the chain here and imagine, you know, it's very difficult in an audio only format, but bear with me. So a scene delegate has something, right? Like an image cache, let's say. You have a content view, then down to a to-do list view, and then a to-do item view. And very finally down to a to-do item details. So the scenario is you've got this singular data cache and you'd like to get that cached image available for the very, very down at the bottom child, the to-do item detail. So in this case, you know, prior to SwiftUI, people would have used something like, you know, uh, a magic context or God object or environment object. And surprise, surprise, there is a thing called the environment in SwiftUI that you can use to sort of pierce the veil, you know, magically, and now you can get access to stuff. So that wouldn't make sense. It's kind of pretty similar to the singleton pattern that people have have used and, and oftentimes abused, but it is something I think that people people get. So that makes sense. Uh, the the next one is also I think fairly understood of uh, from child to direct parent, where you use in this case bindings and callbacks. So callbacks I think is a little bit of the most straightforward of like, hey, uh, you've got a view that needs to say, hey, whoever it is that asked me to keep track of these things. This thing was tapped. This was swiped. Somebody did a gesture of some sort. Uh, this event occurred. And bindings is kind of really a cool way to just, you know, share this channel of communication between, you know, two different things, parent and child in this case. Say, so, yep, user has uh, selected or edited this to-do item. And now in the list, the parent says, cool, I know that whatever that item was has now been updated. So I think that works out sort of pretty well. Uh, I'm going to skip the confusing one because I want to go to the other one that I think was easy. So the other one that seemed pretty straightforward, but I'm really like capturing it all here. This article, it's definitely worth a, worth a read. It's got, you know, pretty diagrams. So they talk about the between children, which is siblings, right? So if you had, you know, two different buttons that both or two different controls, I should say, that belong to the same content view, what do you do? And they call it lifting the state up, right? So in this case, it's like a button um, that was initialized by a content view can call back to that content view. And then using the binding that we talked about before, um, a 
toggle might react to that thing, right? So that sort of makes sense. Like go up to the common ancestor as opposed to say like using, uh, you know, shove something into the environment and just make everything a global variable. Like that's not necessarily a good pattern. And in this case, it sort of illustrates it's not totally necessary. You, you lose a little something when you do that. The one that was a little confusing to me, if I'm being quite honest, was the from child to distant parent use preference key. And I feel like I'm going to have to reread this section quite a few times, but having not used preference key, I was kind of confused. I was like, okay, so preference key requires some sort of default value for a preference and a reduced method that combines all child values into a single one visible to their parent. And you get a, what appears to be a named value produced by a view. And then, then I blacked out and I couldn't understand the, <laughs> the rest at that point. I was like, wait, what? So, uh, do either one of you understand what's really going on here? Cause I was really confused. Uh, so, so the problem they're trying to solve is of course that in Swift UI, you can't really pass around references to objects at all. And you can't, you can't really have things like delegates because, uh, everything's being refreshed all the time. Right. So if you just, just say, because everything is a, is a value type, everything's a struct, just saying, uh, child dot delegate equals self creates a copy of self. So, so self is not the self that you care about is not actually your delegate. So you're calling the delegate on the wrong thing, wrong thing. So, so you need a way to, to, to pipe things up the chain. And so all the way back up, up the top to the top. Right. So, so, uh, the stuff about the reduce thing, I think what's going on there is just that you, you could, you have a, a chain of things that all have access to the same preference key. And, uh, the one at the bottom, you might say, set the one at the bottom and it's propagating up, but then a one in the middle might have changed or something like that. So the reduce has to explain how to handle that kind of stuff. So you have to take all of the possible changes or values that have been passed up and decide what to do with them at the very end. And that's what the reduce does, I believe. Although I haven't used them myself, but that's what it feels like to me. Mm -hmm. Does that make okay. sense? I, I think so, but I think I'm going to have to reread this with that in mind. Because mm -hmm. I was looking at the code, like, all right, uh -huh, uh -huh. As, oh wait, and magic happened here and I didn't understand how this mapped together. But I think based off of what you said, I sort of sort of get so having it in mind that you can't pass around references and stuff and you're you're trying to bubble things up into a single pass sort of cycle i think i get what they're trying to do here right uh, so I say your default value is one at your top level and you have you have 10 things down uh and just sort of by definition they, they can all change this thing so so uh say say each one say le at level two it changes to two level three it changes it to three level four it changes to four level 10 changes it to 10 well which one do you actually want to use you have to make that decision somehow because they can all change it so the, so the reduce method takes all of these values that you put in and decides which one you want to use and you have to define what that what that process is interesting interesting um they do have and i probably should have started out discussion with the example that they were trying to use of a view that has a button that shows an alert mm -hmm. and how you end up getting that to to pass things along um so maybe i might have to to chew on this you know outside of the show given mm -hmm. the discussion we just had there but it's helpful because of, of all of these uh some of these were pretty good refreshers somebody's like oh okay so that's the swift ui equivalent and this is the one that had me sort of scratching my head and wondering what was going on okay next you have up next is the uh, the remote work report by gitlab the future of work mm. is remote and it's it's kind of lengthy so uh, of course we'll have this in the show notes for those of you driving at home it's kind of interesting to to read there are uh as always the normal caveats with this sort of thing you've of how representative is this and they say here that they're sample size was uh, 3,000 professionals aged 21 or older who work remotely.
remotely or have the option to work remotely. You know, our enrolls with digital output between uh, January 30th to February 10th, 2020. So not the real world anymore. It's it's interesting timing for that, right? Because now, um, and it's a big reason why I wanted to, to talk about it, is like now everybody who can work remotely is pretty much doing that. It's it's very right, different. Yeah. As, as some folks point out, um, quarantine work is not the same as remote work. It is, it is different when you have, uh, you know, uh, a prepared organization who's ready to, to deal with remote work. And it's very different when you don't have the um, existential dread or even just the cabin fever, depending on your situation related to that. But even with all those caveats, um, some of the takeaways here are, are, are kind of interesting, right? So um, I think folks would not be surprised that um, hiring remotely is a hiring advantage, right? You have access to a larger talent pool than you would normally mm, have. About, right. Like who lives here in this zip code? Who lives here in this city? Who lives here in this state sort of thing? Who, you, even who lives here in this country? Um, also the idea that, um, you know, more and more roles are becoming remote friendly. And again, you know, pre-pandemic we're talking about, right? Like we're, you know, non-emergency situation. Like I'm looking at the, the kinds of departments and they say here it was like 26% of, uh, of uh, folks who had responded were in IT networking security. And the next big chunk is operations at 12%. And then you get sort of down to the area of like um, administration and HR, which are relatively low percentages. Uh, and when you look at the titles that match up of uh, manager, associate, uh, director, senior manager, senior director, C-level, and other, they they tend to be um, sort of spread out a little bit, which is interesting. I don't know if that's a factor of sort of reality or if that's a factor of the particular people that they uh, surveyed, but it's something to look at, right? So um, for this particular set of folks, uh, 53% were from the USA, 27% for the United Kingdom, 10% from Canada, and 10% from Australia. So that tells you something a little bit about the, the kinds of folks that were involved in this. So it skews a certain way, right? So if you look at um, uh, attitudes on remote working, 90%, I would recommend working remotely to a friend. I'm kind of interested in the the counter, right? The 10% who would uh, who would not want to work remotely, or at least would not recommend it to friends. Very curious in that perspective. Um, I say this as somebody who's been working remotely for uh, three, coming up on four years remotely, and not going to lie, it was an adjustment, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's it's great having a 10 foot commute, you know, from the bedroom over to the, to the, uh, the home office, if we can call it that. Um, would you go back to working in an office? Boy, I, I could, I, you know, um, I could, but it would really require some changes to my lifestyle. Like I think I would have to live mm -hmm. somewhere else. Like I'm out in the suburbs. I'd probably want to live, uh, closer to, you know, where most of the offices for tech tend to be the South Lake union or downtown ish areas, uh, Pioneer Square areas of Seattle, uh, so that I wouldn't have, um, you know, like a, a soul crushing car commute because we don't really have great, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, great transit out here. I can't just jump on a subway train to be in there in any reasonable amount of time. And I also think beyond the sort of lifestyle changes, part along thing that goes along with that is I would need some combination, uh, not necessarily um, both of these, even though that's ideal, but uh, certainly one or the other very heavily weighted. So I'd have to be very passionate about you know, what it is I'm working on and, or I'd have to get, you know, truckloads of cash <laughs> for it to do it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I could yeah. see myself making the adjustment, but you know, if somebody came to me like, Hey, here's something that's very similar to what you're doing now and it pays 
5,000 more than you make now. But like, no, you're not dislodging me from, from my home office for 5k, 50k, you know, maybe, maybe I might think about it there. Right. Or if it's like, Hey, you know, you get to go set up the, um, you know, the equivalent of Amazon web services, but for this totally new company is, Oh, okay, sure. You, you want me to be VP of something or other, you know, you could convince me to go back into the office for that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so that get, I think that gets into some of the, the benefits of uh, working remote that folks are talking about. Uh, flexible scheduling, which is certainly something I appreciate. Uh, lack of commute, I mentioned. Cost savings is iffy. I haven't really sat down and figured it out. Now, I've been fortunate to work at places that are um, at Simple Prior and at uh, the you know, Bano team, Jack Henry, now that are pretty good about providing um, the equipment you need. But I didn't really sort of push it for the, oh, like I have absolutely nothing set me up with everything, right? I was very particular. Like, I already had my desk that I liked, so I didn't ask them for a desk. Um, I didn't ask them for... Well, actually, I did get monitors in both cases uh, and, you know, uh, furnished laptops and stuff and webcams, but I didn't really sit and think like, well, you know, should I have gotten a full ergonomic layout, right, for uh, footrests and an ergonomic chair and all these other things that maybe I could have, right? So is it is it really a savings when I, when I buy myself my own chair and other things? I don't know. I'd have to calculate it out. So I'm I'm very curious on the the cost savings. I mean, clearly, I'm saving on uh, wear and tear on my vehicle and gasoline. Yeah, uh, and transportation other for sure. You're saving on meals. You're saving, you know, like this. You're saving on clothing. You don't have to buy pants, right? Well, maybe um, saving on meals, right? Because uh, certainly, it is cheaper to eat, you know, soup and sandwich at home than it was to yeah. to go out and buy something. But there are many companies, uh, tech companies, who do have free meals. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, um, hmm. you know, I- I- improved, uh, ability to do other things like take care of family or pets and stuff like, like my dog, you know, mm-hmm. gets uh, into trouble sometimes. Oh, okay. Well, it's less of a hassle to say, Hey, you know, I'm going to be out in the afternoon. I need to take him to the vet and it's totally right. fine. Right. Cause right. I have flexibility of like, if I really truly needed to get something done, I could, you know, do it from home. Or if, if not, it's like, eh, whatever, I'll just take care of it tomorrow. No, it's not like, Oh, okay. Well, uh, man with traffic, there's no way I can even get home. So we have to take them tomorrow and like, it just reduces a ton of stress. And I feel like that's a, a big key beyond the sort of nicety of, of flexibility is just the reduced amount of stress from, oh man, like I woke up late and now I'm going to be stuck in traffic or I'm going to miss the meeting. It's like, I have to wake up so late that I completely miss meetings. It's like the, the only way for me to miss meetings now. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. it's not like, oh man, I missed the last train. Uh, I didn't get in the car car broke down. It's the the main thing I have to worry about or being two things are internet is down or power is out. And right. at that point it's right. like, well, people got to understand that you know it takes heroic effort to, to overcome those. Right. Yeah. Those, those are not trivial, but I kind of wonder like, like, you know, the fact that we've all had to do this protect in place or shelter in place thing, you know, working from home for the last little while, I think it's changed. It's going to change a lot of companies um, perception of, of the, of the capability. Um, it's funny. We were just talking in one of our uh, meetings today, about we had a, a retro at the end of our sprint and we were talking about you know the challenges of, of being at home and, and dealing with the stress of what we're all going through right now um, and and it's interesting because some people were saying that they don't have a proper desk environment they don't have a like you know they're not able to you know they're they're living in a family with people and you know they're sitting at the dining room table or is sitting in their bedroom on their bed because they don't have a desk you know um, uh, it's different when like you know, like you know I ran my own business from from my house for 10 years or so 
So, um, and that was, you know, so the, like the majority of the time I was in, in at home and, you know, if I had to go out to a client or whatever, I could do that and plan that. And, but like you said, I could kind of take my, I could putter my way there and I could putter my way home kind of thing. I didn't have to, like, it wasn't on a set schedule. Um, the difference is now that when I do go into, into the office, um, I don't necessarily see all the people all the time, but, you know, it does give you that sort of mental separation from, from work at home kind of thing, um, to physically go somewhere. But I, I lose like, you know, I have a short commute, but still I lose like, you know, an hour or so a day to, ch- to commuting, right? Which is my podcast time, you know, for listening to podcasts and audiobooks and stuff like that. But, um, and there's also the, that expense, right? So I, 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 to be honest with you, I, th- I think based on the kind of work that we do, I still say a lot of it, I think the majority of it can be done through m- remote, right? Um, I know of entire companies like, like your, I don't know for yours is completely remote, but, you know, companies like WordPress are, are completely remote. It's a remote team and they're, they're international. I mean, there are people in UK and United States and stuff like that working across the, the globe that work for that company, right? In all, all the different levels of, of work that they do, right? So it's different when you have something like, like a retail environment. Like we, we, our company also supports retail. So we have a large, you know, contingent of workers who, who don't have that as an option, right? To work from home. Um, and if you're like in manufacturing or, or prep, you know, food prep or whatever, you know, hotel, restaurant kind of stuff, you know, or healthcare, you have to, you have to be on site to do your work, right? But I think that this is going to be a, a real education for companies to sort of see and reevaluate whether or not they need to have that expensive office for people to go into, right? So, and if they could do like you, like your company and the last two companies you've worked for or have all been remote, right? Yeah. Not, or not they, remote only like, uh, like the folks right. at automatic WordPress, but definitely very remote heavy and remote friendly. And right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it does, uh, like we were talking about the iPhone SEs as test devices, mm-hmm. you know, here's a scenario for you that I think companies have to plan for of what happens when you don't have access to, uh, you know, a, a cabinet of test devices at an office, you know, what happens when an iOS engineer needs to test face ID and doesn't have a face ID device or likewise the a touch ID device. Um, these are the sorts of things that I think we need to sort of consider of like either doing without in terms of, like, yeah, yeah, you know, we do our best. And if there's bugs, <laughs> we'll, we'll fix them blindly is not necessarily a great option, but I, I think it is an option or two, you know, reevaluate, huh, maybe there are, you know, maybe it's not that expensive to have, um, you know, company owned and managed devices that you could ship out to your engineers. You know, um, I think it really depends on, in my opinion, like how serious you are about supporting those different features, right? Like it's very easy to say, oh, well, we need to support this device. Cool. Can we get one? Oh no, mm-hmm. the budget doesn't have room for that. It's like, how would you, are you kidding me? How do you not have budget for that? Like it's a yeah. 300, it's a 400 dollar device for heaven's sakes. Do you, do you know how much time we're, we're spending here? Like we've already burned that amount of money just arguing about whether it's worth the time and money to buy the damn device. <laughs> um, and so I think it will just, you know, the meta point is I think people will need to reevaluate, you know, what are these, these costs and, and what is different. And again, quarantine work is different from uh, remote yeah. work, but you know, once we get past the um, we're all forced into this by circumstance. Now, yeah. you know, look, you start planning for the future of like, all right, how can we be more effective? What does that really mean? Let me ask you, when you have your meetings um, with your teams and stuff, are you doing video calls or are you doing just audio calls and somebody sharing a screen or what, what, how do you do that? Yeah, you know, that, I guess that gets a culture because um, our team, uh, this is the Bando team at Jack Henry, is mm-hmm. very video, um, very much a video conferencing culture. As is ours. So, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Which can cause some confusion and oddities with other parts of the company that are audio only. Mm-hmm. Um, like like one of our, our siblings 
sibling uh, divisions is like, oh, oh, you guys are video. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and turn on video too. But just so you know, <laughs> we're used to audio only. Um, so I think you have to to be sort of forthcoming about those. Not to say one is right and one is wrong, but just you know understand how you're going to work together, right? Because I mean, clearly when you you go into a physical office, this doesn't come up, right? It's not like everybody's behind some sort of you know duck blind or something, right? Like you can actually see they're they're not like uh, you know when 2020 or, or Dateline interviews somebody and they're like in the shadows and their voices all change. Like you, you you get you know information about people and and how they're feeling and everything. Uh, just as a natural consequence of that it's not feasible to to make and it's kind of silly to to reduce those things. Um, but I think since we have the option here, it's it's good to to think about. It. So I personally prefer to have uh, and this is just my own. Not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent. Just my own preference. I like having the video um, turned on in general because it helps me get a better sense of is what I'm saying to yeah, people. Is anyone paying sense? attention to what I'm saying, or are they just all right? right. Or are, they, are they all surfing the net? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and well, they, they do that in meetings too. By the way, like in physical meetings, you see people looking down at their lap and in the middle of a meeting, right? But um, I, I find that to be honest with you, I, I'm I'm the same way. Um, we generally don't do video. We like we'll have a screen share unless somebody will be sharing their desktop kind of thing. But um, I, I do find it's very difficult to follow along sometimes when when it's just people talking because, like you said, you take visual cues from people. You know, you can see like you can see their faces, you can see their reactions uh, to things, right? So it it, it is a uh, it is challenging to do you know, like not like an audio only kind of meeting and and sort of have everybody on the same page, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will say that having participated in some audio only meetings, it is an opportunity for me to um, stretch and pace if I need to. That's something you you couldn't normally do in an in person meeting, right? It'd be kind of weird if everybody was sitting at the conference table and I just get up and start wandering around, right? I'd, I'd look like a crazy <laughs> person. Um, but I could do that in, in an audio only meeting. And um, in an audio only meeting, I also feel more comfortable eating, right? I'm like, oh, I'm kind right. of hungry. <laughs> this meeting's going long. I want lunch. Well, I just start eating right. lunch. You know, as long as I'm muted, nobody can hear. Um, right, right. So, right. There, you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons. And uh, I'll admit it, as silly as it is, um, sometimes I'm like, hmm, maybe I should do something about the background behind me. You know, like some of these people have really nice uh, little setups, right? It looks very professional. <laughs> Here I am with, with my my half-hearted attempt at like getting a, yeah. a usable office. Um, and I think that's, you know, in some respects, some ways that uh, we've seen the popularity of the virtual backgrounds for Zoom and Microsoft Teams and Skype, yeah. right? Of like, all right, you know, maybe, you know, I've got three kids and, and there's, you know, laundry tossed all over the place, but uh, looks like I'm in uh, Finding Nemo in the background. Nobody knows the difference, right? So I could still be on video, but without having to put on uh, a bigger show or, or, or inconvenience my life in order to have that capability. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw, there's a, a tweet this week of, uh, you know, all the kids are doing online schooling now, right? Because of the COVID and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so there was a, a, a lady said she found her kid playing with her dog rather than sitting in class. And she's, she she showed the, her parent that she had taken a picture of herself paying attention and pasted it into the, the video chat, like there's the still image. And that she says that they don't know, the teachers don't can't tell that you're not paying attention. And she's 10. Right. Because in a class of 15 to 30, there's no way right. the teacher is looking that closely at them. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I have not done 
that technique, but I have um, done the trolling technique where mm-hmm. here's the pro tip on, uh, I, I know this works on Zoom, but at the very least, if you make your avatar, you know, a picture of yourself, you know, as if you were on the video. And I did the little like Steve Jobs, you know, pose, you know, you, you know, like I'm thinking about something. And then I would turn on my video with me in that pose. So it looks seamless if you're kind of not paying attention right. just to see how long it would take people, how many different meetings they say before they say, wait a minute, weren't you wearing like a white t-shirt? How do you, why do you have a red t-shirt now? <laughs> well, you don't even like do the proper proper uh, continuity. That's crazy. No, no, like purposely, right? I'm just like, let me see. Let me make something that's very basic. And, and you know, it, it would not work if I started with something flamboyant. It was, yeah, of course. you know, just, you know, a plain basic, you know, neutral color shirt. And then, you know, you can wear the neutral color shirt. And then the next day, you can, day, you can change the tone. Like, I would even want to see if somebody, you know, went through all of the gradients of of of, uh, of color before somebody said, "Wait a minute, wasn't that shirt like just kind of blue, not right. deep blue?" Mm, yeah, crazy. Yeah, as, right. as we're on day eight hundred sixty-seven of the lockdown, this is this is what we do now. This is our life. This is this is fun. This is yeah, quarantines. Um, or what do they call it? What are they here today? Uh, COVID idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. All right, let's move on to our picks since we're we've got a real long show so far. So I, I'll let you go off because I've got three of them here so do your uh, pick for me yeah mine is JetBrains academy so this is put together by the JetBrains company you might know them from uh, the intellij ide or uh, mm-hmm. app code uh, PyCharm, and apparently they're working with oh what does it say here they also do android studio right also do android studio that's right that's right uh they're working with uh hyperskill.org on these uh learning to program by creating working applications tracks and right now they have three tracks available for Java, Kotlin, and Python. So if you're looking to do something new and different, I'm kind of eyeing the Python and Kotlin ones myself. Yeah, Kotlin sounds interesting. They look they look pretty pretty nifty. Um, and I think like this Kotlin one is 25 hours of content. The Python is 34. And how much is the job? Whoa, the Java is 82. And um, is it free? Free, but I do believe it is limited time in some way. Uh, so is JetBrains Academy now under an early access program? Uh, it is currently in the early stages of development. While in early access, the use of JetBrains Academy's tools is free of charge. And of course, you cool. explicitly acknowledge that uh, you may encounter errors and other things. You're, you're basically getting um, like beta type access, but um, you know, it's free, at least for the time being. No, no warranty express or implied on this, but uh, you know, while we're all sort of stuck and unless you're watching the new um, Trolls World Tour movie that is available or the Scooby-Doo 3D animated one, once you run out of time to do other stuff, you know, why not check this out and, and try a different language? See sure. how the other side lives. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've got a couple of picks here. Um, the first one is uh, COVID-related. Uh, this is called Health Storylines, and this uh, app came out uh, fairly recently. Um, what it is is a it's a tool for tracking your um, and you know journaling your your daily uh, experiences, how you're feeling. Um, the idea behind this is they're trying to capture information about how people are get, uh, becoming infected and getting infected and, and developing through uh, 
you know, God forbid you get COVID-19. Um, so it's sort of a, uh, a step up from where we were looking at last week, a couple of apps, the, the one from Apple and the one from uh, the government of Canada. Uh, this one uh, just keeps track of your daily moods, your daily feelings, uh, how you're dealing with the stress, uh, if you're having any symptoms. Um, and uh, it's sort of it's sort of crowdsourcing the, the data from people. On the, you can be anonymous or you can be, you know, uh, forthright with it. And um, yeah, the idea is to sort of get uh, get a sense of, of how this is uh, spreading throughout the uh, world. So, um, you know, I, I've been using it for the last week to sort of keep track of things just to see what what's what. Um, you can, of course, you know, do a quick uh, check yourself. Again, it's another one of these apps that's got the quick check to see if you have multiple symptoms. And of course, they'll direct you to a healthcare professional should you have more than the requisite number of, uh, of symptoms. But uh, just, uh, yeah, health health uh, storylines. Um, I think it's available on Android too, but uh, this is just for, for iOS. And I'm not sure if it's only Canada, so I don't know if you guys want to click on the link and see if it shows up for you. Um, hey, guess what? We were talking about Photoshop earlier on the iPad. This is this is another story for um, from the fine folks over at Adobe. If you do have a Photoshop-only subscription or any, any of the, the Creative Cloud things, um, Fresco is an app that we talked about on the show before. It came out for iPad. It's an illustration app. It does watercolor, does oil paint. Um, you can have custom brushes in it. There's all kinds of uh, media online uh, about it. Uh, we introduced the uh, the evangelist for this, uh, Kyle. Um, I've forgotten his last name now. Um, anyway, he uh, we, on Roundabout, we interviewed him. He talked about his brushes and that kind of stuff and how he got hired on as Adobe as their evangelist. Um, yeah, so this is uh, Adobe Fresco Premium is now um, included in your $10 a month uh, Photoshop for iPad uh, subscription. So if you already have that, I have the photo photography bundle, which gives me Photoshop itself on the, my Mac, as well as Lightroom, and also gives me access to Photoshop on the iPad. But And I just got a message here when I opened up Photoshop a little while early, earlier, saying that I, I had access to Fresco. Um, I do have a copy of Fresco on my Mac, or sorry, on my iPad right now. Um, yeah, so if you're interested in uh, that kind of thing, take a look at that. It seems to be free or included in your Photoshop subscription if you have one already. And my last uh, pick is, uh, is sort of a self-promotional one, I guess, if you will. Not really self-promotional. But um, yeah, I take, took my uh, my uh, app that I keep up to, try to keep up to date with the latest, uh, latest, latest things, um, Device Tracker. Uh, it's my Pizza Money app. And um, I decided uh, this weekend that I would try and take a shot at uh, Dark Mode. I think we opened it last week and we were looking at it on the uh, on the iPad with the new uh, trackpad support and mouse support and uh, some of the features that were working for me right out of the box. So I thought, well, let's take a look at dark mode. There was a few things I didn't like about the, the app once I opened it in dark mode. I want to change some of the icons around and some of the background colors. Um, so yeah, it was pretty simple to go in and create um, the features I needed to do. I just had to, in one case, I had to, um, there's like a default icon that appears when you create a new record. Um, I wanted to have a dark mode version of that. So I just went into Interface Builder, turned on any and dark and uploaded a, a, a dark mode version of that. Um, I The colors in the uh, in the app are basically I have uh, three colors in my logo which I call IT Guy Blue um, so I have a dark uh, a dark, a medium and a light color and 
so I was able to those were those were defined you know as as UI colors in in the in the code you know a certain percentage of uh, red green and blue divided by 255 um, so I was able to go into the asset uh, library and create a new color set for those three so I labeled them the same as as the as the color sets now and I just put in the uh, the RGB values or uh, and uh, created those three colors and then it was able to use those colors to um, call them out by you know UI, UI color with name um, to call them out and use them throughout the app and and that was fairly straightforward as well so um, and then and the last thing I tested uh, last night was I decided well since I'm putting up on test flight let me see if I can create a, a public link for people to sign up so I've, I posted a public link on my Twitter account for people to test drive it for me and the app's not perfect but you know it, it was an exercise to go through and see how much work was involved in dark mode oh and one more thing I had to get rid of all my UI uh, web views because as of two days ago I think um, Apple is or the 30th I think Apple's not accepting apps even upgraded apps that have UI web view in them so um, I took a few minutes to go back and uh, remove my UI web views and replace them with with WebKit uh, WK web views and that was again pretty painless uh, it's come a long way since um, since it came out uh, three four years ago um, it was you know there was very little you could do with WebKit you had to do a lot of lifting yourself but now it's it's much more seamless uh, it's just a matter of importing WebKit and then changing your um, your URL request to say instead of load web view you just say load and then you pass in the, the web view that was pretty simple so yeah dark mode test flight uh, public beta and um, you know some code cleanup and um, and uh, get rid of the uh, WK or get rid of the UI web views and that's my device tracker which is going to push out to the it's in test flight right now I'll get it on the app store probably in a few more few more days and by the way you know now that we're in the COVID cycle um, it did take a little bit like when you when you push out your um, test flight app to um, to have um, external testers it has to be reviewed that normally took me like maybe an hour or two in the past uh, it took uh, almost uh, almost a full day to get that through app review so I obviously they're they're all working from home as well at Apple so uh, it takes a while to get things uh, through the queue but it was still it was not as long as it could have been uh, but yeah so I'm, I'm actually got the public beta uh, turned around in I guess half a day let's say um, from when I when I pushed up the test flight and made the request so that's my last pick is device tracker for the iPad and the iPhone and soon as I implement photos into it I'll be able to put it on the Mac using Catalyst anyway so that's it for another week so hey hi many people want to get in touch with you how will they do that I'm on Twitter is at dev with the hair all right Mark if people want to get in touch with you at Mark R at snapsoft.com all right once again my name is Tim Mitra T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me and so until next time we'll say bye 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 this has been another episode of the more than just code podcast this is mike vanogmans mtjc's favorite voiceover artist for some reason if you want to find out more about the show you can visit the more than just code website at mtjc.fm there you can find a summary and show notes of each episode we list links to the apps code and news that we mentioned on the show if you like the podcast tell your friends please leave a comment on the website and if you can please write a review on itunes and please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher all of these things help others find out about the show we really appreciate your help with spreading the word we're also on twitter facebook and instagram we'd love to hear from you so use the hashtag AskMTJC. once again the podcast twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast 
please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. There we go. Another one in the can. Sure. Tim, are you going to add the pointer manipulation stuff for iPad Point. on device tracker? Pointer manipulation. Uh, I, I forget what this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, the, the you new know, pointer related uh, stuff. Yeah, I don't really have to. Oh, you mean like changing from Kurt from iBeam to uh, to? Oh, I should check that out. I think that I think I'm getting that already for free. Yeah, if you use Cause it, cause built-in out of the box uh, yeah. UI views, then you do get it for free. So this this app used to be. It started out life as as a traditional table view master detail uh, view controller app. In other words, I had no storyboards, no nibs in it, right? It was all done in, in code. Um, and then um, three, four years ago, I, I put in the, uh, the I used the, the split view. Um, I, when the iPhone 6 came out, right, I had the 6 Plus and I wanted to have that because it had that split view on uh, if you held the phone in landscape. I Im- implemented the storyboard uh, template and, and basically built myself a storyboard that handles split view controller. So that's when I started using UI and then so I changed all the buttons that were all programmatic to um, to proper UI kit buttons and and you know or or um, uh, what do you call them um, bar button items you know so they're they're out of the box kind of thing and then yeah so all of those behave um, as they should with uh, with mouse support and I, and I also just added a camera button as well because I I had a ability to add photos but I didn't I don't know why I didn't have the camera button in there but uh, I was looking at yesterday on how to how to implement photos it's quite photos is quite different than the old UI was it UI image picker framework we were using before um, where you could have oh a, pho- we, yeah we, the photos framework that's yeah it's hugely different but that that's been around for like five years already Never yeah. I hadn't. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so the only reason I, w- I, I would look at putting it in because I because I all I'm doing is is you know grabbing a photo from your photo library or grabbing a photo from the camera mm-hmm. and putting it into the record, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't really need a lot of heavy lifting. But but uh, I noticed that on the i on the Mac when I tried Catalyst out that the the uh, handling of photos didn't quite wasn't quite uh, mm. savvy, right? So uh, when I when I looked into some of the tutorials, like Ray Werner like has a tutorial on. Uh, implementing Catalyst and a few other things. Um, uh, they have a pro video on how to use photos on the Raven Lick site um, by Lindsay Taylor, I think is her name. Um, but she, uh, yeah, she go- kind of goes quite a, quite a bit of detail because you have the pH assets. You've, you've played with it, right, Mark? Yeah, I used it quite a, a bit. pH assets and pH yeah. collection, collections and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, so... Um, it's actually quite nice. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it, it was very different when I first switched over to that from the old one, whatever it was called. Yeah. I don't even remember what it was called anymore. Yeah, it was like a low level, lower level one, right? AV AV Media, something like that, or AV. No, there was there was an old I forget. Anyway, there was an old one that was kind of equivalent but just older. And mm-hmm. it was a it was a pretty big change to change over, but but it's pretty nice because it has it does a lot of stuff asynchronously asynchronously. So you you get placeholder images and you don't have to uh you know you don't have to wait blocked for things to load and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. pretty nice. Yeah so one thing I noticed that was interesting about the photos um, framework, if you will, is that um, it also handles the the iCloud images, right? Like, as yep. you know, they're not on the device; they're yep. actually they're, they're downloadable objects, right? Um, so you can grab this, and also the fact that you can list all your your albums. Um, I, fi- I find it's pretty frustrating when I go into other people's apps and see, you know, all the because if I go to pick an album, uh, an image up off of uh, 
off of um, another app. I, I sometimes find that they they give you the, your albums and then they give you every event as a as an album. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Super annoying because it takes forever to scroll through those to find you know mm, yeah. the album you're looking for. So some people like that though. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's I, personally I find that just being able to get to the the you know that I probably have like twenty or thirty albums already, but I don't need every single time I've picked up my camera as an event, you know, sort of to show up, which is what it does. Mm-hmm. You know, it clumps them all together. So ultimately, I'd like to make an app that um, that uh, has um, has the ability to edit the metadata in in the images, which you can do on the Mac, but you can't seem to do on on the iPhone or on iOS, I should say. I don't know if that's even possible. Yeah, I used to do it when I was working yeah. at um, mm. what was it? Relive Photo Sharing Company. We yeah. did that kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But you could go in and change like add keywords and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And descriptions and things. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah, because it makes it handy because because the search does work. Like if you're looking for a cat or a dog or a bicycle, yep. you get generally get pretty good results. You get some real anomalies sometimes in the photos app. But if you're looking for something specific, like you know, like an iMac or an iPad, you mm-hmm. know, um, it doesn't often you know find those for you easily, right? I mean, I, I have thousands of pictures of iPads in my in my photo library, right? And yet I can't use that as a search term, right? No, which is which I find funny considering Apple made the iPad. But yeah, so it'll it'll be interesting to see. It, it, it's going to be a I don't know if I'll I don't know if I'll wait on this particular update to get photos in there, but that's obviously I think that's a, something I need to do before I go to Catalyst for sure. I forgot the device tracker was the more normalish app, and it was the Pi Day countdown that I've suggested be the Boondoggle. Yeah, the Boondoggle. Where, app, where yeah. you add AR Kit three point five and the new pointer interactions. Yeah. And I think I might write rewriting it in Swift UI actually, just for fun because it, it's a bit long in the tooth. Actually, it's funny you know I, I made the Pi Day countdown way back in like twenty. 10, I think, right? Uh, it was for March 14th, 2010. And every year I go to a party for New Year's Eve, right? And I usually mm-hmm. pull out my Pi Day countdown to countdown to the to midnight, right? And for years I would pull the thing out and then the, the entire party would be like totally oblivious to the fact that I had this this app and, you know, three people in the in the room would know about it, right? You know, even last year I pulled it out. Well, this year they actually used Pi Day countdown to countdown to midnight. So I find it's taken me 10 years to get them to do it, but finally, finally they got around to doing it, so... I mean, a lot of the, uh, you know, overnight successes <laughs> took many years to start. So maybe right. this is the beginning of it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm using some weird sort of font in it. And yeah, it just, it doesn't look right when you use regular strings and stuff like that. So it needs work. It needs work. I think I think I did update it. I added, um, uh, I add to it back in the day and, you know, had to take it out and switch over to add mob. And I don't think I've made a single dollar off of it in terms of ads. <laughs> it's a different world for sure. Right. That's Especially now, since uh, advertising is all depressed at the moment as a market for um, right? <laughs> the economy is in a world of hurt, right? So people are pulling back on on that. Yet another upgrade to uh, Zoom to deal with now supporting dark mode is very confusing <laughs> are they oh. yeah it's, it's it's amazing how many apps you see support dark mode and how many that don't like google oh my god i'm blinded by google docs i'm surprised they don't support dark mode i guess it's a google versus apple thing right i think it's more of a just google doesn't google's never really cared about ui <laughs> particularly it's true they never really yeah. have mm-hmm. 
So hey, you know what I've been watching uh, on Netflix is uh, Kim's Convenience. Oh yeah, yeah, it's just, it's really funny. You know, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's actually just down the street from me. Um, cool, like, oh, there's an actual oh, store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I took a, a I have a picture of myself standing in front of it. It's it's um down the road from uh, from here. Like you know, actually there's there's a scene in in one of the this year's uh, episodes where they were standing on the corner. I live on Gerard at uh, sorry, I live on Logan at corner of Gerard and Logan. Gerard goes east west. Logan goes north south and there's a there's mm-hmm. a, a scene taken from like the cameraman estimates like just you know how they have the little in-between scenes between the show like parts of the city yeah so there was a scene that was filmed just you know from the corner where i like literally am all the time catching the streetcar kind of thing right yeah, no, yeah, wow. yeah. So, yeah you know you look at it like whoa that's my my hood so do they ever film the actual show i mean that not the in-between scenes but the actual show like around there in the real yeah area? yeah do i mean you-, you know we have a lot of uh, yeah you'll see them at night like like they'll have the you know the the camera crews with the you know the light the light pots to sort of light the place up because they actually do sometimes film in that store like coming in like he's you'll see scenes of him sweeping the sidewalk and stuff like that and yeah okay. but but the store you see in the show is that's a set it's it's you that's yeah, a set okay yeah. yeah 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 actually just south of me is is what we I don't know if we still call it Hollywood North or whatever but there's a whole bunch of you know those big barns that they do for films like you know they look like uh, you could land in you could build an airplane in them a jumbo jet kind of thing um they have a lot of those just south of me and they do a lot of film film work down there right movie that's where like you know star trek and all that kind of stuff is filmed and stuff you know maybe that's what's wrong with with star trek discovery mark it's filmed just down the street from my house (laughs) but uh yeah so so yeah a lot of that stuff is like sets and i have a lot of friends who work in the you know in the tv business and whatever my my um nephew does a lot of he works on a lot of shows he worked on um uh designator designated survivor for a bit and a few other things yeah so Mm-hmm. Cool. So I finally finished Discovery. Oh, yes. Exciting, eh? Season two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all he's going to say. Well, you know, the best parts were the ones on Enterprise when none of the Discovery characters were around. You mean like like when they had number one and Pike and stuff like that? or Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah those were good shows. Good yeah. episodes. Yeah, but even that, even they, they even played with that. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I guess if they could go back and do a show with Jonathan Archer, they could do a show with Christopher Pike, right? So before the accident. they I think they even, didn't they at one point sort of have like the, the reactor blowing up and, and him having to sacrifice himself in one of those episodes, or was it? They showed what would time? happen in the future, how he ends up getting that injury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they did and, build and, that expensive yeah. Enterprise set, and that's why everybody's like, "Well, obviously they're going to make a Pike one because it was, oh, really? you know, hmm. you know, a well-received character, and they actually spent the money to build the set hmm. versus just redressing True. the Discovery hmm. Bridge." True. No, I, actually, I think actually they must have actually made a set. It's a completely different shape, right? So, yeah, that's, that's another sort of kind continuity thing that you know the way that the discovery um bridge looked compared to the you know the retro 60s yeah, the discovery style. one was way more modern yeah. than the enterprise one i had trouble believing that the enterprise was supposed to be the more advanced chip <laughs> well they went right. back they got rid of all the skeuomorphic stuff and went back to like flat you know yeah right yeah <laughs> ba- yeah that was their ios I mean, 7. Rid of all their- <laughs> there's yeah. people who are you know getting uh, nirvana vinyl albums and that that was never a thing right vinyl stopped being a thing long before Nirvana came on the stage. Are you sure? Like you I'm sure? sure there was like some vinyl manufacturing plant somewhere, but there there's cer- 
certainly wasn't, you know, a whole bunch of brand new vinyl records being made with uh, yeah, Nevermind. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, she was recording when, um, when there was, like, she was just starting out when there was vinyl, right? And, and just at the very end of it, tail end of it. And then about, I guess, four years ago, three years ago, when I, when I first met her, she just came out with a new vinyl album, you know? So, so she kind of saw both, she, she sort of bookended both ends of the vinyls going away and vinyl coming back kind of thing. And, and she's not that old. So, I mean, she could, she was probably about, you know, in the, in the same age range as those guys, you know, or maybe a bit younger. So if, if vinyl was around still then. Yeah, but you're right. There, there is there is a whole slew of artists where, who never were on vinyl that are all of a sudden now on vinyl, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we see everybody on Zoom. I've still got a couple of hundred vinyl records at my parents' house back yeah. in Massachusetts hmm. somewhere. Yeah. I, I have no idea what condition they're in. And they're, they've probably been just sitting in a closet for years, so they're probably all warped and melted. Yeah, Jonathan kept all my um, albums. Like, we, I think we got rid of a bunch of them, but he and his, he and a friend of his split them up, and he kept them in his mm-hmm. garage for the longest time. Of course, we have all this, you know, weather and snow and whatever, so all the covers are all rippled mm-hmm. and stuff. But now he's he's now got you know a record player and he's got a whole he's bought a bunch of records. He's probably got a couple hundred records now that he bought through some estate sales and stuff like that, right? So mm-hmm. all coming around. I have a few I have a few mounted um, albums on my wall and like in frames, you know, those twelve inch frames. Mm-hmm. So, like yeah, got a few. I, I got a couple of original ones, but yeah. What do you know? It's all coming around. That was like the late '90s, so we were still. I guess we still had vinyl around then, right? So when was it? When did uh, Kurt Cobain end his life? In the know? early '90s, like '92, '93. Early '90s. 90s okay. Yeah, so hmm. yeah, I stopped buying vinyl in the late not, late '80s. Mm-hmm. I was all CD by. Well, it's actually when I moved to California. Yeah, when I moved to California, I didn't bring any of my vinyl with me. Right. I only brought CDs with right, me. Right. Right. And that was '91. So I had already switched over or started switch over by then. Yeah, I think I did the same. I moved to Vancouver yes. in 96 and I don't think I took any, any albums with me. Probably just CDs mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, here's the best example. Yeah. So uh, I think we can all agree that Taylor Swift definitely does not predate the end of vinyl as a thing, right? Well, Oasis is one, right? Oasis is a band too, right? So you mean her her life does not predate? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's super sure, young. Yeah. Like, like Taylor Swift <laughs> yeah. lover, Target exclusive vinyl two-disc color set. $24.99 right. at Target like a new one or an old one i mean the 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 meta point is that there's no way that taylor swift was around you know it wasn't like this album came out on vinyl originally yeah. right yeah. is is she even 30 taylor swift i have no I idea i think so but she's she probably is, oh pretty close to it she by is now, 30 years say, old yeah wow 30 years old so she was born in 1990 december 13th 1989 so yeah there was still some oh in 89 okay there was still some vinyl around back then mm-hmm. yeah but like oasis did oasis is you know like uh what's the story morning glory did that ever was that ever on vinyl it is now but was it on vinyl back then mm-hmm. yeah. just it drives me crazy like the albums that we bought in the 70s are now like you can buy them on vinyl reissued you know actually there, i think there was a cutoff period like i think i heard it was like 75 was when they changed the formula that for most vinyl and it went down there's a there's a podcast i listened to called the ongoing history of new music he he covered a whole thing on on whether you can hear the difference between vinyl and and cd and stuff like that and mp3s and stuff right so yeah but were you, you were you bummed out that they had reissued them me? Yeah, from no, like only, a collector's only from the standpoint. point of view. Yeah, like these these were these are albums that I would have if I had a record player, I would buy these today. Like you know, like say Dark Side of the Moon or or uh, Wish You Were Here. Um, you would actually buy them on vinyl. Yeah, yeah, I can I can Why? hear the difference. I don't know about you. And same as Charger and Puppers Alone, the Hearts Club Band, Wait. I would buy that on vinyl. I have it on vinyl. You can hear the difference between uh, vinyl and a flack recording. I don't know, I don't know what a flack recording is, but I'm talking about CDs. F-L- I'm talking it's about CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so CDs are. I mean, CDs 
CDs are pretty good quality. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. I'm not even sure it's about. Yeah, they're not. They're I'm not, not even sure it's about quality. Well, unless I, you I think it's it. about how they were mastered. That that Jim knows what the master sounded like oh, yeah. for the vinyl record. And well, that's true. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, yeah. That's actually quite possible. Yeah. If they if they there's one thing about like Dark Side of the Moon, for instance, David Gilmore has said that the number of times they had to transfer from tape to tape to tape to tape to actually make the album by the time it got to the actual vinyl, it did not sound the same as what it sounded like on the original master tapes, right? And then I think what, like 10 years ago or so, or 20 years ago, they went back into those master tapes and took them and made CDs out of them, right? So the, all these digitally remastered stuff that you see that artists come out with, those are generally going back to the original master tapes. And so it's like analog to digital as opposed to analog to analog to analog to digital. Every time you went from tape to tape, you degraded the quality of, of the recording, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah. in the nature of the fact you're writing on Rust, you know? But but yeah, so so it's kind of, it's arguable as to whether like a remastered CD or like like the Beatles remasterings are, are apparently phenomenal compared to what we actually ever ever were able to buy on vinyl, right? Yeah, it's it's still hard to believe from a science and engineering point of view that just the act of sampling and converting to digital yeah. degrades the sound yeah. in any way that you can hear, that a human can hear. Yeah, I don't know. I know people, are th- people are throwing stuff at the screen, I know. But, <laughs> but there are a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> or not the screen. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, Stop beating and, up your phones. It's not marked the, their fault. The, yeah, the, the simple answer is just look up the Nyquist theorem, right? So so you've got all the frequencies there that you can hear. Yeah, the CDs are, are at 44.1 for a reason, 44.1 kilohertz, because uh, if you if you sample at, uh, well, whatever, you, whatever frequency you sample at, there's a fundamental theorem that says whatever frequency you sample at uh, will reproduce frequencies up to half that, precisely. Right. Okay. So, so when you sample at forty-four point one, that means you get up to twenty-two, roughly twenty-two kilohertz, precisely, just just from the the sampling process. Okay. So you should you should be able to reproduce the signal precisely uh, up to twenty-two kilohertz. And human hearing only goes up to if you're young at, at best twenty kilohertz. Right, right. Someone someone a little bit older in in our age range. You know, we're lucky if we if we get much over ten kilohertz. So so just from a pure sample sampling conversion to digital point of view i don't believe that there's any any hearable difference any uh, any difference between a cd and and a and vinyl well so now, having said that having said that there's a lot of other stuff that's going on in between the point where it comes off the the record or the cd by the time it gets into your ear right you're it's going through a whole different set of amplifiers potentially different speakers potentially if you're remembering your old system uh and and everything has a a certain frequency response uh, built into it. So if 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 they did optimize, this goes into the mastering that Jaime was talking about. If they did optimize the sound to sound really good for on vinyl, you know, they tailored the sound to sound really good on vinyl. Uh, then if you reproduce that same thing, it, it's in a, in a in a more modern, a cleaner amplification environment. You're going to get all those tricks they did to to optimize for the honestly crappier <laughs> sound environment. Yeah, and those tricks might actually make it sound worse when you play it through a pristine uh, amplification system. Right. So, but so the thing, but the the, the thing that I, I agree with you that okay. So if you're taking you're taking the source, the original sound source, and you're putting it on mm-hmm. vinyl, of taking the original sound source, putting it on, on sort of digital media of some type, or, or sampling it into some digital media, right? That's one thing. The mm-hmm. other thing is that on a vinyl record, um, you have like physical grooves, right? That you know, mm-hmm. and that yep. and the grooves determine the vol- the volume the pitch and and like the sort of bass timbre and all that kind of stuff right 
then you have a needle, right? That goes into and go, mm-hmm. that goes that needle sits in that groove, and it goes into like a um, the needle is held in in a magnetic field, and it interprets takes those groove those as it travels through the grooves and creates a, a magnetic a sound through by by moving a coil in in the the uh, what we call the stylus head, right? And then that goes into a stereo system, which you know is made of wood and whatever. And but I mean, the, and it has equalization and it has tubes and things like that. I'm, um, so there's there's kind of a different. Set. I think it's the warmth of what we call. I'm, maybe I'll do air quotes here for this, but the, part, the warmth of a vinyl record that it's not the record itself that's recorded. You know, the one the the, the not, it's not ones and zeros, but the equivalent the the mechanical version of it ones and zeros, right? Um, it's not that that's different than than what it is, but it's how the sound is actually reproduced in that mechanical transference, right? Like because you you know you could you could grab a little you know cheap little those little cheap suitcase style record players we used to get you know um, they sounded crappy with the crappy needles or you could go and go out and get a Macintosh stereo system with the you know the highfalutin you know EQ systems and and a, you know like a glass um, platen that you put the the album on or the vinyl on so the so there's no vibration on it other than the needle moving in the groove you know there's all those different things you could do to reproduce a, a vinyl the, the performance of a vinyl record right or or, or playing of it right oh yeah and, and that's kind of what i'm saying yeah. so so at that point it kind of depends on where did they record right. it before they digitized right. it. right right did they did they record it coming off a really high-end uh analog system yeah. and then and then were their micro were their microphones good enough yeah. to pick up all the yeah. intricacies so so was the process of re- did the process of recording lose some of the sound well, there's also this, the idea of the sound too i mean like if you look at like you know that that sound city uh it's on netflix i think it's called sound city it's about um it's about the the console the, the 24 track console that mm-hmm. dave Grohl now owns yep. and he has in his in his home studio right it was originally in the sun city studio and that's where fleetwood max rumors was recorded tom petty's damned torpedoes was recorded nirvana's um albums in vitro and another one were recorded there in that sa- on that same board right and it's it's is it coincidental that three albums from three different decades are like you know like majorly recognized as masterpieces yeah, and sure sure yeah no doubt that that contributes to how how good the sound sure. is but but that's sort of that's sort of independent right because the the whatever you record onto the CD is is after all that so so right. here's a, here's another here's another yeah. thing that 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 I I've noticed about this particular show people are listening to right now right like by the time this mm-hmm. comes out it will be an MP3 at 44.1 kilohertz blah 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 right so we're current well mp3s aren't at 44 point mp3s are compressed well okay so l- let me let me back right. up so so yeah, currently okay. Jaime yeah. and i are recording at 4800 kilobits per second or kilohertz yep. right and yep. and you're you're because we record you on on zoom you come in at a little less than that but i sample you up to 44 okay. 48 right so i do the okay. mix down yep. at 48 and i and i hear the quality of the sound at 48 or the sound of our voices and the yep. hammer and all that kind of stuff and it's it sounds yep. pretty clear you know to me right mm-hmm. then yep. i take it from once i've done the first sort of mix down and i get all the all the, the hic- hiccups and and do some editing and stuff like that and and move sounds move you know people around and stuff like that i take that and i and i bounce it down to uh 44.1 kilohertz because the original master that i did for the show from the very beginning was at 44.1 44.1 so i had to so i have to dumb this down right and i notice a difference in sound already once i go once 
once I bounce down to that lower lower sample rate, right? Why? I don't know. Then I take it, once I edit the whole thing and I put in this, the theme music and all that kind of stuff and do the final edit and, you know, chop and put you know, move things around in the show and change the order and stuff like that, I bounce that down to an MP3, right? It's I guess it's 64, right? 64? I have to look at the settings in there. But but between those three bounces, I notice a huge difference in the sound of, the, of our of our recording. Like, if I could if I could produce this show at 40 at 4800 kilohertz and just set it out like that it would it would sound phenomenal but of course the file would be huge and would take forever to download you know relatively speaking but and we wouldn't be able to store it on the server that we're storing it on but so how do you how does that happen how do i notice the difference in in sound so sorry i i kind of i got distracted by something as you were talking about um did you say you compress it um well yeah i mean i well when i when i'm uh let me just open up a logic here when i when i'm bouncing it down um yeah uh because because I have a certain requirement that we, we can't have too big a file. I'm, yeah. I'm going to stop talking for a minute because my logic might go weird on my, my because it fires up core audio. So let's see. I've got last week's show here and I think what I normally do is I bounce it down to look at the settings here. So MP3, I have it set for 64 oh. kilobits per second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as soon as you go to MP3, you're you're compressing mm-hmm. it. You're compressing the sound. Mm-hmm. Am I? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. so what? So when we're talking about the, the 44.1 or the 48K, yeah. what that's actually doing is is, is it's it's 44,000 roughly times per second it's actually measuring what the sound level is and it's and it's storing that sound wave as a as a you know as a as a bunch of bytes over time so it so it's a it's it's a it's a time domain waveform and and it's it's very accurate because it's it's really so just theoretically it's higher resolution in, in, in layman terms for those of us driving at home right yeah I mean it's just it's just taking it's just taking the signal and 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 you know, and just measuring it really fast. So it's a close approximation okay. to right. the original analog signal, which is just a continuous wave. But but then uh, you you when you when you want to compress it, what they do is there's also whenever you have you can think of a, a sound wave as as a time domain signal, right? Which is just the measurement as a function of time, right? Which is what you actually measure. Or you can think of it as a as a bunch of of frequencies all kind of mixed up. This is something called Fourier theory that says any time signal can be represented by you know, a, 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 if you have enough frequencies at the right magnitudes and add them all up, you'll get back your same time signal. Okay. But but humans can't hear higher than certain frequencies, so they already cut out the higher frequencies. Uh, and what MP3 does is it kind of figures out at which frequencies are there not is there not much going on. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you can. If you cut out those frequencies uh, and play some other tricks uh, about about um, you know there's uh, there's a, a, some of the size is based on how many bits is each measurement right so if you use if you use ten bits for each measurement then the number of 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 the amount of data that you need to store the signal is like you know twice as much as it would be if you if you happen to use five five uh, bytes right or five bits rather uh, so so there's some other tricks that they can play to just cut out areas of the signal that there isn't much going on in. And then when you convert that back to the time domain, uh, you you actually get it to be, it's a much smaller signal, but you've lost some of that stuff along the way, some of the some of the fidelity, because you kind of, you end up kind of, you know, rounding off some, the, the, the high frequency stuff is, you know, kind of sharp corners and, and bumps and things like that. If you, if you kind of, if you get out, get rid of some of the high, 
higher frequencies, then you sort of round that off and you lose some of that signal. So overall, it sounds, it's roughly the same because the overall signal is approximately the same as it was, but there's not as much resolution in there. And so you've traded off the size of the signal for some uh, fidelity in the sound. And because you don't have as many frequency components, you you can't as faithfully reproduce the sound. Right. So, So MP3 compression is, you know, over years, they figured out exactly what tricks they can play to cut out certain parts of the signal to still make it sound reasonably and, good and save da- and save space and right? save a huge amount of space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, the same it's the same principle they use in JPEG compression. Yeah. Where, oh, it's you know, it's it's exactly the same. I mean, because uh, you got lar- if you have a large field of green, right? You can you can sample that down to like one sort of small rather than saving information about every single pixel like you do in, in Photoshop has every single pixel loaded, right? Right. But, but when you have a JPEG, you sort of say, well, this these this range of of, of coordinates on the image are more or less the same thing. Right. Right. So we'll just we'll just paint them with one pixel and then we'll save like thousands of pixels of, of data yeah. you know memory, right? Basically. Yeah. And and equivalently yeah. equivalently if the sound is like is exactly the same within one percent sure. for a couple of seconds, right? Yeah. Same note. Yeah. yeah. Well in, in the real world it's it's not precisely the same. It's changing a little bit. But let's yeah. but we say, you know, it's the same within one percent. Okay, we we just represent that entire time with just a single number, then you've cut out that one percent of from the quality of the sound, but you saved a huge amount of space. Same same deal. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's our physics lessons for the day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's why, like, right. there's the video formats like MP4 and, and MP2 yeah. is the old one. It's not a coincidence that there just happened to be an audio one, MP3, kind of in between. No coincidence at all. Oh, is that? Oh, yeah. I see. It's, okay. It's right, a right. it's a uh, it's a similar algorithm. Yep. So what's M4A? That's just a different thing different M- file. M- m4a i think is the same as mp4 isn't it um and, I, M- I, and mkv is actually not a not a compression format it's actually a file format that will hold like mp4 i, I could have those wrong though and somebody will mm, somebody right. will correct us yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, then, yeah. and then there's h264 and all that blah 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 yeah h264 mm-hmm. is yeah as a whole it's a different scheme from mp4 yeah yep. and h264 I, I mean it's just a, the the majority of well i, I guess yeah because cds aren't actually mp3s either are they they're they're, they're not mp3s Higher quality, yeah. Mark no, they're they're sam- they're they're sampled. They're digitally mm. sampled. Yeah, right, right. Okay. The the big the biggest problem, the, the biggest reason that CDs sometimes don't sound I good is that them. you listen to them in crappy car stereos or whatever that just have the resolution, don't have the, the audio resolution. Okay. Anyway, more. Well, what are we storing on our phones and in, in iTunes? Are we are we iTunes are AACs typically, right? Or they right. or MP3s. Yeah, that's a yeah. it's a different compression scheme. Yeah, still lossy though. All right. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.